<laughs> Welcome to Week in Horror. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. The podcast that deep dives all the films you love. You gotta be fucking kidding. The week they dropped in horror history. We all go a little mad sometimes. With your horror hosts. JL. When a shirtless Sam Elliott with no mustache takes out a, an alligator with a uh, with an oar, that's the kind of movie I'm looking for. Eugene. And we're just casually just like, yeah, so this is probably the best way to go, light someone on fire with gasoline. Alex. It would not be an original lineup if I didn't have fucking technical <laughs> Johnny O. Now, it's not an Amityville. Or wherever it's Amityville. And Aaron. They, they got manure to work with and nothing very from it. <laughs> News, trailers, trivia, special guests, and more. You're going to need a bigger boat. Live show every Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central at YouTube.com slash Week in Horror. Welcome to prime time, bitch! And wherever you listen to podcasts. One by one, we will take you. Week in Horror. <laughs> Stay scared. <laughs> welcome, welcome. <laughs> I see Eugene scrambling right there. Welcome, welcome, horror fans. It is Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time, and that means it is time for another episode of the Week in Horror podcast. The most listened to podcast south of the Arclay Mountains. And if you, dear horror fanatic, are listening to us at the top of the week, remember we do this live every Wednesday right here on YouTube, and you can join us in the live chat, hang out with us, maybe win some cool swag from the Week in Horror store. This week, we are covering select horror films released January 1st through January 7th. Thank you all so much for joining us. I am JL, and with me tonight is Eugene. What's up, everybody? Hey, hey. Oh, so I know, I know that this is Wednesday. Right? I know it's Wednesday, and it's not technically over yet, but this one will be going to all the podcast sites at the top of the year, because uh, January is a very cool year, 2023, and January is very cool because we get a Friday the 13th. That means that this is going out, like, literally 1-1 one, one, uh, to kick the year off. Um, man, they, it's al- it's almost over. 2022 is almost done. Yeah, I mean, this is this is it. Like, it's uh, another year in the books. <laughs> What the fuck, man? <laughs> it's 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 wild. Every time we we get to like a like a certain point, like we get to a like yeah, I guess like to the end of the year, or we get to an anniversary or whatever, or or a particular like number, like a particular number of episodes done. Like for example, with this particular episode, this is I think if I if I did my math correctly, that this is a this is a officially episode one hundred and seventy two. One hundred and seventy two. <laughs> 172 episodes. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, I think we're, we're scheduled to hit, we're scheduled to hit, uh, like, 200 episodes. I think, um, I think sometime in July, like, July of next year, I think we hit, like, 200 episodes. We hit our 200th episode. But, yeah, 172 episodes we've done. This will officially be, like, 172. We're going to close out 2022. And, uh, well, technically, this one, this episode kicks off 2023, so... See, it's going to be interesting to see, like, when we get to, like, episode, like, 1,000. 
like years upon years. Oh, that's from just now. that's just fucking wild. That'd be we'd be like <laughs> like in season ten at that point. I don't even know if. Uh, and to be perfectly honest, there's lots of horror films out there. There really are, but we have covered so many of them. And you think it's like you know, like they're, they're like you you. Uh, this is what's so weird is I as I'm putting this whole thing together, as I put together the show, and I start putting together the horror film database. It's like you think it's like man, it's like, like an endless supply of horror films. And but then you start putting it all together. You put it into linear format. You put like a release on every single day of the year. You add to it as they come out. And while I know that no more movies are coming out, more movies will come out in 2023 and everything. But you realize, wow, it's like there's. There's really not. It's a it's a finite amount of films that we can talk about, and I'm looking forward to how uh, how the show is going to adapt, how we are going to adapt as we get into that where where we have where that we're gonna we're eventually going to have more future releases than we will past releases because as at this point right now we've covered I think coming up on like 700 almost 700 episodes that are 700 movies we've covered on this show. So doing four at a time before that five, and then eventually it's gonna it's gonna wind up being three, so we can save some for the future. But uh, but yeah, it's it's wild to think about that. But but speaking of that, in 2023, and I've been looking into it. Is there are you looking forward to any films coming out in 2023? I'm actually looking forward to the Winnie the Pooh, uh, <laughs> the, the Blood and Honey. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> That that's like that's the main one. I think that I think that film is going to be just completely fine. Um, there are some stuff. There are some uh, remakes. Like you have like the actresses coming out. That I'm kind of I don't know why you touch um, a fantastic horror film that came out 50 years ago, mm-hmm. but people want to. Um, you're going to have the new Saw movie that's come out because they felt like they need to do a new Saw movie. Um, be because new- because Spiral did fairly well. Spiral so, did well. Shockingly. Shockingly, Spiral did well. For, I mean, for what it was, for being a Saw film, but because it was kind of an offshoot and what uh, it was in the same universe, but it's kind of like it's it's kind of a spinoff of the main of like the main storyline. So because it was kind of a reinvention, it actually did fairly well. Not to mention the cast was decent, and Chris Rock actually uh, did a decent turn because it was not comedic by any stretch. So I mean, he had some lines that would elicit some laughs, but it was very black humor. That's not that. That's not. <laughs> it was very I dark. See what you did there. It, it was very dark humor because because he. It's wild because there was there's a whole sequence there was a sequence in Spiral where Chris Rock had this monologue where he's talking to his new partner and he's talking about the life of police officers and like what it's really like and yeah. what how it how you know you do what you do to a, for a thankless public and then ultimately you end up sacrificing everything in your personal life for you know for this job like this job demands so much of you you know you wind up losing everything just to you know, just to protect and serve a pop a populace that generally doesn't thank you for that, and it was just it's just brutal. It was it was strange because the or the the other ones uh, the focus of the original Saw films was very much about just you know getting you know the uh, the um, I guess you know the more inventive the traps and the more gruesome the death sequences and just kept you know, they just kept having to up the ante. Whereas in Spiral, it was a it was a far more uh, nuanced and very nihilistic take on life in and of itself 
and how one person could be affected by the methodology or the ideology of somebody else, and then they could take that and turn it into their own kind of thing. So that's why, because it changed the script and you know brought someone in that because Chris Rock believed and he was like, I definitely want to do this movie, and I was like, Holy crap, Chris Rock is going to be it. That's weird. Chris Rock in a horror film, and but it worked, and it was I was pleasantly surprised, and it did fairly well at the box office. Okay, yeah, because I know I didn't know Chris Rock actually improved a lot of his dialogue. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah, he actually it was more of so when they wrote the script, it was more of a paragraph of what he was supposed to cover line for line, and then he filled in the rest. So that's nice. all coming from him. And Chris Rock is a big Saw fan. That's why he wanted to do it. He's just a huge fan of the series. He's as a so whole. fucking talented guy. I was I was impressed because he went because he went to places I'd never really seen. You know, the, you know, coming from where we we've seen Chris Rock come from, it was like you look at Chris Rock's background, you know, and I just it was he went to places which really impressed me, and that's why I, even I was kind of like, oh shit, you know, friggin' friggin' you know, eight Saw films, and I'm like. Pfft. You know, whatever, and then all of a sudden, spiral comes around. I was like, "I'll give it a shot." I was like, "Oh, damn!" I, I can see. I was, I was impressed. I can say I am definitely myself looking forward to uh, the new scream because I just want to see what's going to happen. I know it's probably going to be Ghostface takes Manhattan, but I do want, <laughs> I, I do want to see what they're where they're going to go with it. I'm intrigued because the subway sequence was actually kind of cool. Kind of inspired, and uh, I'm looking forward to the new Winnie the Pooh, obviously. But I'm also uh, we cannot say Evil Dead Rise has seriously got my attention. I really, really, really want that to happen. Want to see that, and of course uh, Nicolas Cage in the new Renfield coming up because I've seen the uh, the behind the scenes photos, and I was like, that's it's pure Nosferatu German expressionism. It's literally like. Nick Cage has come full circle in his career. Finally, the snake has eaten its tail, and he has returned to the roots of his expressionistic training. And so he finally gets to be what he's meant to be, and that is the 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 inspiration. This is the, he wants to be what F. W. Murnau was was thinking of when he was shooting Nosferatu back in the early 1900s, and he wants to be that. And so he's come around to to, to do that. So I'm looking forward to that big time. Yeah, I'm a, I forgot about Evil Dead Rising. Yeah, that's always I, I have looked forward to everything Evil Dead has released. Fuck yeah, fuck yeah. All right, well, let us know in the live chat or, of course, in the comments below or at weekinhorrorgmail.com if there's any particular movies in 2023 that you're looking forward to. We'd love to hear your thoughts and, you know, what you expect. And, of course, if you think there's going to be any stinkers, um, <coughs> knock at the cabin. Or if you think there's going to be any amazing ones, you know, who knows what's going to happen. Man, your, your camera's looking very paranormal activity at the moment. Well, all I got is... <laughs> So I have no light, which is this, or I have a blaring light in the background. Uh, okay. Because you definitely got the you know, Paranormal Activity 8 thing going yeah. on right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's see who we've got in the live chat. Before we do that, let me pull up the banner. Bam! There's our Patreon banner. All those amazing individuals help us to make this show possible. We love you all very, very much. Thank you. And let's see who is in the live chat tonight. 
Let's see. Casey Cooper's here. Good to see you, Casey Cooper. Travis Brown as well. Good to see you. He says, good evening, boils and ghouls, and hope everyone having a deading good time with New Year's Eve when this podcast podcast goes up. Absolutely, we will be. We will be partying like it's 2023. In other words, uh, getting drunk and ducking covering. J.H. Uh, Ostrich, good to see you. Thanks so much for being here. Haley Taylor, the psychotic banshee's in the house. Good to see you, Haley. And the George says, says I'm not late. I'm early. Something must be wrong. I'm never early. It's true. You are. You were early, George. Thanks so much for being here, bud. Raven Darkstar as well is in the house. Good to see you. As well as KO. No, no. Oh, sorry. And Aaron Reese is hanging out. Aaron Reese is currently, I think he's got the kids. And it's just, you know, it's holidays when you've got like as many kids as Aaron has. I think he's got, he's up to like 12 now. Um... Because at this that point they're just, right. at this point they're just falling out of her. So, but <laughs> but Aaron, good to see you, bud, hanging out in the live chat. Says hello, say hello to the new year, same as the old. Absolutely. And I see uh, Angel. Oh, see Angel Rivera's there, and there was a good conversation going in there. Mystique Tina Jones is hanging out. Good to see you, Mystique. Thanks so much for being here. Appreciate it. Glad glad to see more of you. Glad you're hanging out with us. Sir Chasm as well says good evening, fellow freaks and geeks. Good to see you, Sir Chasm. And Haley Taylor says I traditionally watch the greatest Christmas movie ever, Die Hard. Absolutely, 100. It is a Christmas movie. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely, it's a Christmas. Oh, movie. there you go. It's yeah. a Christmas movie. I mean, come on. When they open the vault and it's Ode to Joy, and it's like, dun, 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 he's like, he's like, come on, yeah. it's a Christmas movie. Hands <laughs> out, it's a Christmas movie. And it has like, uh, what's this, uh, singing in a winter wonderland. Right. Song. right. Yeah. When he literally, they open up the safe, and they're playing Ode to Joy, and the the, uh, the, the hacker turns around, and, and oh man, that, that actor recently passed away. I cannot remember his name. He, he played Walker's partner on Walker, Texas Ranger. He was the hacker dude. Oh, man, the quarterback is toast. He recently passed away. Oh, yeah, I heard about that, too. I can't remember his name. Oh, I know I'm pretty sure somebody will comment pretty soon. Someone on... will tell us what it was, yeah, yes. but that's, a, that's but... a damn shame. But, yeah, he says, Merry Christmas when that happens. So, uh, Dib Dib, good to see you. He's in the house. Good to see you, Dib Dib. Commander Darklight is here. Good to see you. One of our longtime supporters. Huge, uh, I think, one of our uh, one of our first patrons. Good to see you, Commander Darklight. Nemo813 as well says, howdy to all the Christmas survivors. Absolutely. Ordinary Jeff is here. Says, hi all. I'm finally here for the beginning. You were. Thank you so much, Ordinary Jeff. All right. Denova28 is here. Another one of our amazing supporters. Good to see you. Mr. Malort as well says, hey, hey, currently watching Black Christmas. Which one is the question? The original, the remake, or the second remake? Because they get progressively worse yeah, as they go Yeah, there's one along. good one. There's one good one. And it's the original. Oh. Speaking of which. I've got we have uh, I've watched it now three times because you know that's how, that's what I do with movies that I that I dig with with horror films that I dig I watch them more than once. Christmas Bloody Christmas. I I showed it in the Discord. I watched it with I I watched it I showed it in the Discord. I watched it solo and then I showed it to Angela. We've got to watch that because think of it like if High Fidelity was a Christmas slasher. Hmm. Because there's a bunch of di- there's lots of dialogue in between some of the characters, which is very which was very reminiscent of High Fidelity. So, and there's some opinions in there that are expressed that I think that you and especially Johnny, because there's a lot of music opinions, um, because the, the main characters work in a music shop, so they work in a record store. So there's some opinions in there I think would are quite entertaining. But that's a good movie. Y'all should check that out. We we should we should do another watch. I do want to see that, and I, we still need to watch a couple other con, other movies too. So right, yes. 
Let's see, Brian Powell's here, says, good evening, everyone. I'm snowed in up here in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Good to see you, Brian, all the way from the Great White North. Thanks so much for hanging out, bud. And I see the plot hole here is he says, what's all this? We're doing we're doing the show. You're you're somewhere in Colorado, sir, having you living your best life. So we're here. We're here working. <laughs> There's the two of us all by ourselves in a dark room. Oh, I almost did it, man. I almost did it. You said just the two of us. And I was like, Ebony and Dove. No, I'm not going to say that. Oh, I just, said, just the two of us. Just the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> oh man okay so the show's going downhill anyway Rodan no less name is here good to see you says gabba gabba everyone good to see you tony regime as well thank you for the obligatory ghosts we appreciate the alternative energy and i think i see some new um yep johnny's taking a much needed break he has needed a break and uh hope you're i do hope your christmas is high all my best to the kids johnny i hope they all had a fantastic one same to you uh aaron i hope the kids had a wonderful holiday and um, I'll make sure I got everybody. And I think uh, Plothole also commented about, yeah, Travis Brown says I'm getting canceled after that after that uh, Chris Rock joke. <laughs> I totally messed that. I was like, I was like, Ugh. but Plothole said, yeah, Chris Rock's humor and spiral kind of slapped you in the face. It absolutely did. It was not what I was expecting, and just goes to show how talented that he is. And whatever he's doing, he can accomplish it. I think comedy is kind of like just what comes naturally for him. He's got that natural timing and he's got that cadence that, that is just hilarious. And so I think um, because he's so grounded in that, that he can branch off and do, because comedy is the hardest and he can just go out and do whatever he wants. So it's just, I just love it when they, when actors are given the opportunity to take a turn and do something outside of their, outside of their wheelhouse. And it was so great to see him in that. And, um, see, and you, I, I just want to nail one point real quick mm -hmm. is the fact that, so many comedy actors are underrated despite the fact that comedy is the absolute hardest to do because to do comedy, you have to commit 100% to the vision and your on-screen performance. You right. cannot half-ass comedy in any way, whereas you can half-ass kind of a drama scene or a horror scene or something like that. But then you have, so you have all these great comedians like Adam Sandler and Chris Rock and Jim Carrey and it's like, of course they do really good in dramatic roles because they can, they've already mastered the hardest form right. of uh, the hardest genre to do. So uh, it's them just doing what they normally do except in a serious role. Right. Absolutely. Let's see. Uh, Sir Cab says, if you say Tim Burton three times, Johnny Depp and Winona Ryder appear. Oh, that's good to know. Good to know. Um, Pothole says, first time I saw Chris Rock was in Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> <laughs> I also loved him in in uh, in Beverly Hills Ninja when he was because when he was trying to like kill just like <laughs> this when he was trying to rip the head off the chicken <laughs> he was freaking hilarious in that oh man oh see oh see I think I got everybody in the chat I think I see everyone and yep it's Aaron reset and canceled <laughs> well done everybody. <laughs> And Casey Cooper asked, could a slap get past the beard? Unlikely. Unlikely. My beard only hides another fist. Uh, and Tony Regime says, shame Will Smith doesn't appreciate Chris Rock's humor. This is true. He really <laughs> did. Actually, I don't think Jada appreciated it. And Will, by extension, didn't appreciate it. Oh, and Fred Knott says, I miss, uh, I miss Fred Knott's. But good to see you, Fred Knott's. Thanks so much for hanging out. It was one name. Out of all these names, I, I, I apologize. I missed one. So, my bad. All right. 
Oh, Pootie Tang. That's right. He wasn't Pootie Tang. And, Os and Osmosis Jones. He was. Oh, oh, really? oh, remember Pootie Tang? He played like the 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 corn. Like he played, he played like the corn stuff. <laughs> Pootie Tang was so fucking weird. That was the weird. That was the weirdest fucking movie I've ever seen. I've ever seen. It was just. Um, I, 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 just like I took acid and fell asleep in front of, uh, you know, BTC or something <laughs> or BET. So I, have, I, it was just, I don't, did you ever see it? No, I've never Sh seen it. Sharate Wanata. Nope. Pootie's, Pootie's so awesome. He don't need, Pootie's so great. He don't even need music. Don't even need lyrics. Don't even need music. Like he released his new single and it's just. <laughs> I've heard of it. No, I've never seen it. <laughs> it's so beyond ridiculous but i will say the scene made me laugh when he was like when he's doing his single and it's like pootie so pootie so talented don't even need words don't even need music and he's in the booth going like and then it shows a kid like listening to and then like the radio plays and now for pootie tank's new single and it starts and then it's just that's how and then the kid's just listening and then the dad busts in. Turn that racket down! It's <laughs> fucking weird. Um, Mr. Malort says he's watching the 1974 Black Christmas Margot Kidder. Absolutely. 100%. That is the correct answer. That is the correct answer. Don't need no music. Don't even need no words. Plotel says, Weekend Horror, I can't believe that got past you. I didn't see what you said. I may have missed it. Uh... Oh, okay, I get it. It says, slapped you in the face. His comedy slapped you in the face. And I, uh, oh, uh, uh, yeah, 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 we get it. Sorry, I was, yeah. I was thinking about something, you know, like, you know, interesting. <laughs> 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 Anyhow. Yeah, I did read it. I read it, I, I took the context differently, plot hole. What the shit, man? See, even from the sidelines, he's still... <laughs> It, yeah, I can't. Oh, <laughs> we'll never escape. We'll never escape. You realize, you know, it's going to be like this when production begins. It's going to be like this every day. Every oh, yeah, day is going to show up, and it's gonna, it's just mm. <laughs> <laughs> like three solid weeks of just Johnny O, Johnny O snark. All right. Oh, he says, "Did you forget who you were talking to?" I, I, I unfortunately did. Or did I fortunately forget? <laughs> never again never again never again absolutely all right well we have some movies that we want to talk about tonight if you and want to I... call these movies because this is okay this is wait now hang week. on a sec no this is a no. rough week this was not a rough week there was, was one bad one i will admit i will admit one of them was fucking terrible <laughs> one of them was terrible bad one no, 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 no. Okay, okay. Obviously, we're gonna have a divergence of opinion here, but they're the, each. Okay, the, the these ones have there's some merit here. Okay, and I don't think I'm polished in terms by saying that some of these have merit. So we're gonna get it. So okay, why don't you, Eugene? You kick us off. What is first on the chopping block tonight? All right. The first one we have is The Grudge, released in January third, twenty twenty. Not the original or the first American remake, but the 2020 Grudge. Roll it. <laughs> and hey, Donnie does that. Good to see you. Good to see you. All right. That is The Grudge, directed by Nicholas Pence, 
well, starring Andrea Riseborough, Damien B- B- Damien Bashir, Damien Bashir, John Cho, Betty Glippin, Gilpin, 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 Lin and Jackie Weaver. And just basically, in a nutshell, you have a horrific event that took place in the house, and now you have a spirit that follows people uh, when they go into the house. This is the thing. This is the thing about the Grudge, right? The Grudge mm. One Twenty. Okay, I love the Sarah Michelle Gellar one. I think it came out like two thousand four. Yeah, I, I love that one. That is, it, it was just a few years after Juan came out. So. Yeah, it yeah. is hands down like one of the scariest experiences watching the film and i absolutely loved it it has so many creative moments like the shower scene mm-hmm. uh the kid coming in under, under the bed covers like i was just, like some great fantastic the kid under the movie. covers was pretty was pretty gnarly the the lift up the sheets and Cover, yeah, there. dude dude i'm telling you man the fucking the one that got me was this was the CCTV camera? Yes, scene. The detective the is watching watching the replay, yeah. and he's like sees the figure coming forward like this, and then it go, and then like everything goes, you know, it's all wobbly. You know, the electrical, the electronic interference, and then it, it walks off, and everything turns normal, and then it starts again, and it rises up in front of the. Uh, that one fucked me up. I was yeah. like, no, 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 <laughs> and then the eyes goes like, fuck off. I'm off this case. I have retired. I am pulling a. Sh- I'm pulling a sheriff from True Blood. I am fucking out. Like I'm done. I'm retired. So that one fucked me up. <laughs> like that one, like hands down, goes in like horror, like legend. But the thing is, is like this one doesn't add anything. Like the scene of him in the shower is like, oh, that was really scary when I saw the exact same thing from Sarah Michelle Geller. Right. Right. Yeah, you know, and and it was done, it was done a little bit better in, in my in my on in my opinion it was done a little bit better in the in uh, the uh, the original in the two thousand four one the the big difference that came across on me is that obvious that obviously the reason the the original the the reason that the original remake was so much better was because the original director had come along to uh, and had taken uh, taken that on um, that would be uh, director Takashi Shimizu. So he directed the original Jew on the Grudge, which came out in 02. And then the remake, uh, he was hands on deck for that one as well, which is why it translated so much better. Which unfortunately is the difference between the big difference between that one and this one was in the original in the in the original remake and in the original one, you didn't have people running around doing stupid shit. Like in Shimizu's uh The Grudge. In his remake, you wouldn't have people doing dumb things like leaning in closer to the bathtub full of, like, black fucking water and shit. And it's like, oh, well, I'm very curious. No, because Shimizu respects audiences and says, like, we you know, recognize that even in extraordinary situations, we don't really do overtly stupid things unless we're panicking. And so he recognizes that until, and even then, we're pretty much survival-minded. People don't run up the stairs when they should be running out the front door, as Nev Campbell so po- you know, pointedly pointed out in screen. Shimizu recognized that. This director, unfortunately, did not. Nicholas Pesh and, of course, the, the script in of itself leaned too hard into the American tropes of what makes things scary. Now, I was happy that they didn't lean very hard into the jump scares because it, it's not really about jump scares. It's really about just there's something horrible there and then there's like a reveal, but it's not like the, like the kid under the sheets. That wasn't a jump scare. That was, there's something under the sheets and then she just lifts it up and then there's something there. And it's like, what the fuck? It's more like Alien, you know, where where it's like, it's there and then all you get is a few frames of something and then your, your mind goes with the rest. 
which is what makes it terrifying. Like, you know, one of the scariest scenes um, was when Dallas is in the shaft, turns the uh, the flashlight towards the end, and then the aliens, there's, you know, six frames of hands coming out, and that's it. And your head, go, your head does the rest. That's having respect for your audience. This, unfortunately, took a really, really good franchise, other than The Grudge versus The Ring wasn't so great. But this one took a solid franchise... And just made and, and just made it too American is my was my big problem with this. But I thought the story was decent. The act, even though some of the acting was a little too, uh, some of the characters were a little too cookie cutter for me. Like the cookie, cr- the, like the like the people just cut from like you know, like the one dimensional character. Like the I'm the I'm the the uh, the uh, bedraggled off you know detective who's seen too much and I'm smoking like a chimney and I've got past trauma that I can't let go of. And I'm the single mom cop who's moving on from tragedy. I'm trying to read, you know, like, it's all too cookie cutter for me. But they captured kind of the the hopelessness of the situation well in the script, which they could have lost if they'd focused way too hard. It's just they kind of Americanized it a little bit, which is the most annoying thing. And I think they overused the, uh, the classic um, throat noise. They yeah. kind of overuse that without explaining why. Technically, the uh, the character it's the uh, the mom that makes that noise, and the reason it's the um, what was her name? Uh, yeah, Kayaku. The reason Kayaku makes that noise is because her husband strangled her. He strangled her to death, and then he hung himself. So when he strangled her to death, he messed up her throat, and that's why she makes that croaking noise whenever you see her. And because the kid loved the cat, and the cat was murdered as well, and he also killed the son, he drowned the son. That's why the the son makes the cat noises as well, because that that's linked. So, but I, there were things they did right, things they did well. But it was. See, ex- but see, on top of this is this doesn't add anything to the franchise. It it it, 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 it was kind of like an extension. It was it was kind of like in the same universe, where it's like an extended story, where it's like it starts in Japan at the infamous house. And then just carries it to America. That's really all it did. So it's like another story within the, within the same universe of the exact same thing happening. The thing is, it's not it's not something that we need. Like it, like when I'm looking for some kind of a when I'm looking for a sequel or a remake or a reboot or something like that, I was like, okay, well, I want maybe a new angle to it. Get show me something that I haven't thought of, and by simply Americanizing it. It just it didn't really add enough to justify its existence. Basically, it's like right. a okay, yeah, this is neat. I understand the factor building on the Grudge franchise, but it didn't need anything. I like Grudge One. I like Grudge Two. It didn't need anything else, and it didn't come off creative enough. Basically, what we talk about here is there are no risks. Right, like, there were just like take some risks trying to at least try to do something new with the franchise and he just failed and it's it's interesting and uh because Raimi Raimi had the Sam Raimi uh had the, pretty much had the production reins on this and so Sam Raimi and Rob Tappert and uh um uh, Takashige Ichise were uh, executive were executive producer were producers on this and executive producers and Raimi has a particular style that he goes for that he that he wants that or a visual appeal that he knows that that he knows works that he's been working ever since Evil Dead. So you always get that kind of Evil Dead sense into everything that Raimi touches. You're going to have some kind of hallmark uh, visuals that will always you know be Raimi's signature on this. So 
we've seen that and the thing and ever since with the with the Evil Dead uh, franchise with that reboot with the kind of like the continuation of the reboot of that franchise that one works really really well even though they kind of, that one worked very well even though they, they kind of suffer from the same thing here it is essentially a springboard to do something new with the franchise it's like what can where can we go with this but we still have to establish it so because the grudge the the you know the remake originally came out in the early 2000s it's now 2020 or now now it's 2020 when this one came out now here it is 2020 almost 2023 technically it's 2023 now but the same thing goes for the Fede Alvarez Evil Dead that was that was in 2013 well yeah but the thing about the Evil Dead the the remake is it did something new it took risk it took it actually it just switched it up I see is not like, to hear Johnny talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just because the thing is, is like with the the college kids, um, the fact that it's like, oh, well, she has a drug problem. Oh, well, she's seen this, which I thought was an excellent cover, and she went through new, she went through whole new experiences. Mm-hmm. Whereas with this, it's like a, it was almost like a cookie cutter from the two thousand four. And I understand it's like, oh, well, you have to kind of establish something, but it's like, do something, do something different. Show something. You have one of the scariest paranormal villains in cinema history. All you have to do is just let her and the kid do their thing, and it can be really, really scary. And this is one of the very few franchises you have to scare the audience. It's not like zombie films or monster films or all this other kind of stuff where you don't necessarily have to scare the audience at all. The grudge is scary. You have to scare the audience, but you have to scare them in a way where it doesn't come across as cheap jump scares because we can't do anything else. And when we Americanize things, that's what happens. Right. It's exactly where the Ring franchise went. But that's why I kind of have hope for it because I, I the people that have control of it – no, like I, I think know what they're doing, and, and like I was saying, you know, like with with the evil with Evil Dead when that kind of got its reboot back in 2013. Now here we are, ten years later, we're finally getting uh, Evil Dead Rise. That takes time, but we probably would never have gotten Evil Dead Rise if it weren't for the reboot, if it weren't for the kind of the the continuation story done by Fede Alvarez. The same thing goes here. It's like without this film, it essentially is an opportunity to kind of kick it off, bring it to America, and quite possibly do something different down the line. So this, the reason I didn't, ha- I didn't have so much of an issue with it is, one, the cinematography in the film is absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. This, this film right here is, an, is, a, is a, kind, of, kind of a master class in <clears throat> just the basics of creating, atmosphere, of, of, sh- of creating an atmosphere for your film. Knowing how to shoot your movie, knowing how to shoot all your individual scenes, knowing how to maximize your specific locations, how to look for very specific things that are going to come across in a cinematic way. Because you want the environments, like the house in and of itself needs to be able to convey character as well as the, as the individuals that are running around in the, in the set itself. How to, and most importantly, what I noticed, how important color is as far as conveying what's going on and conveying the emotions that are currently happening. If you look at the colors that are uh, utilized for the detectives, for the detective's house, the, the burned-out detective's place, and the colors that are used for the single mom's place, the colors that are used for the uh, house that's currently haunted, and you look at all of those individual things, each one of those is extremely important. And the color correction was well, well done throughout the entire film. So as far as like what you can take from, from filmmaking... Really, really smart choices, which is why I think if this was designed, this film was intended 
to bring it over to America and kick off a new franchise. Essentially, it, it's over here in America now. Now you have another haunted house that more people will become, well, it'll be dragged elsewhere like this. The kind of unstoppable nature of this curse then uh, Raimi and Tappert's production company can then continue on and do something different in the next film. So, like, Johnny had a problem with the Evil Dead, uh, with the with the Fede Alvarez one. He didn't dislike it, but he said it's pretty much just Evil Dead. Or it's Evil Dead 2, is pretty much what he said. And I can see why he came up with that. But, without it, we wouldn't get Evil Dead Rise. And we certainly wouldn't have gotten Ash versus Evil Dead. We certainly would have gotten like the whole reboot and gotten, you know, gotten more Bruce Campbell back. So we don't, you know, I'm looking forward to Evil Dead's Rise. If there's a future for The Grudge, I'm looking forward to it because I know it's in capable hands. And I've seen that they can do this. So this may have been kind of just, you know, hey, here's the reboot. We've changed up a little bit, but not too much. We we know you're familiar with it. You know, now, now see where we're going to go next. Which is what I think they were intending. Unfortunately, they may have dropped the ball a little bit because they didn't do enough. So, like you like you were pointing out. Yeah, because it's a you can you can do a world establishing something like that when Star Wars on a big franchise. Like we take the Force Awakens. That's what the Force Awakens was. It's like here's our new like world. We don't we're not going to take that many risks and here we go and then it can get off in a direction that it went direction. But the, the thing is is to world build or to launch something, the first in, the first installment has to be good. And right. so when you look at Evil Dead, the 2013 <clears throat> one, that's a good film in of it in of itself. And it's like and it fits perfectly into the Evil Dead franchise. And the Evil Dead franchise doesn't have a bad installment at all whatsoever. They're all fantastic. Right. They just keep they basically keep upping it and upping it and upping it, which is awesome. That's why I'm looking for Evil Dead Rising because Evil Dead hasn't done anything wrong yet. Yeah, <laughs> there hasn't been a misstep. Yeah. Because Ash versus Ash versus Evil Dead was by far some of the most brilliant television I've ever watched. I've never seen a, a lead actor have that much fun in the role that they're playing because Bruce Campbell just every scene I mean, when when you shoot a scene when your head gets pulled into the into through the when your head gets pulled into the anus of a corpse, so in that scene, and he was having a blast. You could tell that that Bruce Campbell, everyone in that on that show was having a blast. The I love the Alvarez uh, reboot or continuation. I love that. Um, I, every single one adds something new to the pot. Uh, it's I'm looking forward to Evil Dead Rise. There's a possibility something could be here. Uh, I for, for as far as the, the future of the grudge goes, it's in decent hands. The problem is, is that I think they went a little too hard in the in the Americanization of it. Uh, what made the grudge scare? What made the grudge terrifying was the combination. This is what the Phantoms, because Denova, this kind of inspired Denova Twenty Eight brings up kind of similar to what they're going to do with Train, Train to Busan. Now, Train to Busan was was magnificent filmmaking. Mm -hmm. The reason it was magnificent was because the focus was not so much the zombies. The focus was the people on the train. Is what people do in extreme situations. And all these different kind of reactions. It brings out the best in us. It brings out the worst in us. It reminds us of what's important. And it shows us who we really are in the face of these dire circumstances. Uh, Angela still thinks that I would be the the dude who would strap the the phone books to his forearms. Yes. Just fucking go to <laughs> it has everybody she, behind him. And just... She was like, where were you cast this movie? So, <laughs> But Train to Busan was magnificent. Peninsula didn't work out so well because they were forced to lean too hard into the zombie side. And it was like, eh, this is what the Americans expect. 
So it lost it, it lost what made it special in Peninsula. In Peninsula, lost what made it special. The same thing goes for like you know pretty much anything they they bring over uh, overseas because the focus in America is not that. Our sense of family ties is not like it is overseas. Like whether it's doesn't matter. I've noticed this whether it's you know Mexican horror, South American, African, European. You know, Russian horror, Indonesian, Philippine, Australia. There's always a focus on the family dynamic and how close these people are. And that's always got me. I was like, that. you know, I love seeing amazing people. Not just idiots running around being, oh, oh, and, you know, whatever. It was the face of, of interesting, good, solid characters in the face of an unstoppable evil. And that's what makes The Grudge so good. So I don't know exactly. So yeah. and you're talking about the Train to Busan remake, which I believe is called. It's the uh, Last Train to New York. Last Train to New York. That's yeah. right. It's called. <sighs> and this is what I'm not looking forward to because Train to Busan. You're right. You have compelling <laughs> characters. You have all these, interse- all these intersecting storylines, and it deals with social economic class. It deals with sacrifices that parents make for their children. In terms of maintaining that social economic class, mm-hmm. and there are all these deep dynamics that go on, and the zombies play a backdrop. They're just they're the background. They the, basically what it is is the zombies reveal who these people really are. Right. Absolutely. Whereas you have the businessman who's willing to sacrifice anybody as long as he's able to survive. So. So this is why I feel like they're going to miss the mark. The best case scenario is the last last train to New York is as equally good as Train to Busan. That's like best case scenario, which, once again, we already have Train to Busan. There, if it is just as good as Train to Busan, there's no reason for it to exist. There, That's true. Just, That's right. Yeah, there isn't. So what we're basically going to get, we're going to get a worse version of a movie that we already like. Well, it's like, well, just watch the original. It exists. Read subtitles. God, the movie is so fucking good. The movie is so... It was top, so good. <laughs> top five zombie movie. Hands the top five oh, zombie movie ever made. Easy. That was, it was, yeah, I was I was just compelled from the start. It was it was Train to Busan and uh, All of Us Are Dead. That series. All of Us... Uh, where the, there's a zombie outbreak and it, and the, uh, the all the action takes place in a school. And so that's a series, an actual, like, I think it's like eight episodes, I think is how much, how many it was, eight or ten, but either way, that was a fantastic series. Very manga-ish, very, had some anime stylings, you know, some typical stuff you'd see in in anime or manga, but nonetheless, All of Us Are Dead was a a fantastic franchise, and Train to Busan was magnificent filmmaking. Um, It almost comes out, like I said, you know, like I noted here uh, in the, kind of like the treatment they were doing, The Grudge 2020 kind of almost got it. It hit on a few solid things. There's some good elements in there that really play that that are you know taken from the franchise. The franchise is known for specific visuals, and it nailed it there. But that's not hard to copy what's already been done. As Eugene pointed out, what's hard is is world building and adding to something and making it more enticing instead of just trying to double down on the shit that's you know instead of just you know putting more stuff in there that's already there because then that just bores us. And it's how you treat the audience is what's important. I felt like they. It almost felt like they were kind of treating the audience like, okay, so the deeper kind of concepts that were brought up in the original Grudge, in the original Juwan, and in the Grudge, though those are too much for you. And I got the, I was like, I'm just like I'm not an idiot. It's not, it's not like I'm an idiot. It's like I'm not a kid. You know, I don't need you to paint by numbers my horror for me because it came off as very simplistic. You know, it was yeah. kind of like here it is, paint it out. Here's your storyline. 
here's your business. Oh, 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 here's a little twist. You know, just kind of spicy thing to kind of spicy things up. But it felt very much like I was like we were treated like children. And that's unfortunately not the way to sell it. I'm hoping that this was a springboard to something new, to a new film headed by Raimi and Tapper. Because I still love them. They're magnificent producers. So I hope that we get something more, but um I don't know. I hope that I don't feel it killed the franchise. No, it, it, I don't feel like it killed it, but and this comes through just the filmmakers out there is don't dumb down your films. Understand the fact that there may be a small group of people that don't get your film. And that you know what? That's just okay. That's okay. That and is okay. <laughs> because there's nothing wrong with letting the audience think. And this is where somebody like Christopher Nolan has made his money is because he makes the audience think and people enjoy it. And he's like, you know what? If you don't get Inception, I don't care. Sorry. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Hang on a sec. Hang on a sec. Because you know what it does? <laughs> it makes you want to watch it again. That's <laughs> right. Exactly. And I, that's why that's why I really respect Gore Verbinski for what he did with um, what for what he did with The Ring. Because the ring was extremely well done. I had to roll when the the original the the um the Naomi Watts one came out when that remake came out. I'm sitting here watching. It was like the the thing that got me and the thing that he leaned so hard into, which was brilliant, was the psychological was the was the uh, the psychological horror of what of the of what you were seeing. You know, like what's on the tape. You know, what are people seeing in this? The, the 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 visceral imagery that you see on this thing and the little things going on all around there, all, all like all around the characters with no explanation and no context. You watch the videotape, you're going to fucking die. That's it. That's it. Done. Done. Um, Can you then... beat it? It is like, we don't know. That's why the first one was like, was so, uh, that would, the rings creep me out yeah. big time, like haunted me for a couple of days. You know, I'm sitting there look, like, looking at like normal innocuous shit and I'm like, uh, it's all creepy to me. So, <laughs> but that's how you do that. You respect the audience. You don't try to exposition your way out of it or try to paint by numbers. Just throw the scary shit on the fucking screen and get it. And yeah, I can see what Denova brings up. The Ring didn't scare me as much as The Grudge did. And I get that because in The Ring, it's only until the seven days are up that she comes out of the television and then kills you and scares you to death with what she does. Whereas... Kayaku in the grudge, like, fucks your shit up. Like, yeah. <laughs> she puts hands on you. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, man. But, all right. Actually, I want to ask the audience what is the best grudge franchise entry? Because you do have the original Japanese version, you have the 2004 with Sarah Michelle Geller. And I believe it's 2006 when The Grudge 2 came out, which was actually really good for a sequel. For a sequel, yeah, it was not yeah. bad. And it was Grudge 3 as well. Oh, and yeah, Grudge uh, 3. And uh, Kayaku versus Sadako, the uh, the Grudge versus the Ring. I don't know where they came up with that. That's, that's some that's some yeah. full moon. That's some full yeah. moon puppet master versus demonic toy shit going on. But uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I have to honestly say, uh, it's a tie. The original Juon mm -hmm. was fucking scary. And that was a combination of things. It was scary because of what was portrayed on screen. And it's also scary because the linear storytelling left you very un left you very unbalanced. It was purposeful, disjointed filmmaking. Where it's kind of like, what's happening? And it's all, and you know it's all coming. 
to a fucking Guy Ritchie conclusion in the end where everyone's gonna fucking die. And, you know, I kept, it was that pervasive sense of dread that got me, there's like, this is not going to come out well for everyone. Everyone's getting the bad ending um, in this movie. There's no escaping it. There's, like, no way. So it was just, it was just waiting for it. To, it, was, it that was terrifying. But the, I love the remake of The Grudge, the Sarah Michelle Gellar one, because I am, I, I had a huge fucking crush on Sarah Michelle Gellar for, like, the longest time <laughs> in my life. It's, it's very hard for me to watch Buffy again. To go back and watch Buffy, not because I I because I, I love the franchise, but if I sit down and watch it, I have to watch it from season one, episode one, and I have to watch the whole damn thing. I'll find myself in a Buffy hole, and I'll literally watch the entire all seven seasons, and then I have to watch Angel after that. So it's just it's literally <laughs> like a mo- like like a month of my time just eating up. Like if I, if I watch it, I have to watch it. So. Ugh. Oh no! I mean, I get you because that's that shit. That show is amazing. Yes. Um, yeah. I honestly, I have to go with Ty also with Juwan and the first Grudge. And mm-hmm. roommate moving stuff. Okay, that's some creepy shit. <laughs> in that, in that to- paranormal fucking room you're sitting in, that's like, huh? What's going on? What? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I would definitely, I would definitely do a tie between uh, those two. Which I mean, that's if you want a blueprint on how to do an American remake of a foreign film, that's it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Tony Regime says nothing wrong with wanting to be in a Buffy hole. No, there's not. There is nothing wrong with wanting to be in a Buffy hole. Is not. Um, I, and I know the connotation. I know. I know the double entendre there. I, I get it. Well, I'm telling you, it's because you know it came out and it, the series debuted in 1996 as a mid-season premiere, and that's why the first season is uh, is uh, so short. But I, f- I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the storytelling. I fell in love with the characters, and I nursed the biggest fucking crush on her. And I followed her career intensely. You know, every like I know what you did last summer. Like I got Misty when she got smoked, and I know what you did last summer. I got Misty when she got smoked and screamed in Scream Two. Um, even that stupid uh, cooking movie that she did with Sean Patrick Flannery. <laughs> I, I was, you know, I was there at the theater and I saw it. So I've supported her career. You know, The Return and The Grudge, and of course Grudge Two, which she did, which she you know cameoed in. Um, so yeah, and yes, sarcasm. She's still hot as August in Texas. She absolutely is. I don't. We don't need to go into my 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 Sarah my SMG fascination. She. I mean, I'm well beyond those years, and Freddie Prince Jr. would whoop my fucking ass. So, <laughs> no, Raven. Angela's very well aware. She's very well aware that I had a that I had a fixation that I, that I did. I had a fixation. I I I, won't, I don't want to call it obsession. <clears throat> I don't. Because it, 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 I mean, I don't. But I mean, if I if I start watching it, I can't stop watching it till I finished it. So, all right. And on that note, <laughs> on, on that note, <laughs> speaking of things crawling into, <laughs> that's true. Yes. Ah, uh, uh, we have our next film, Crawl Space. Y- yes. Um. <laughs> I just, I've read the comments. Commander Darkness says, what about Scooby-Doo? Yes, what, Scooby-Doo, Scooby-Doo 2, and of course, um, all the voice work she's done for uh, Robot Chicken. Uh, Veronica, you know, Veronica decides to die. That remake, uh, you know, I follow, I follow it. You know, and, and her show, you know, the uh, the the, uh, the Crazies, um, or, I'm so sorry, um, 
Oh, the one she did with Robin Williams that only lasted a season because it got yeah because he unfortunately he passed after that. So, but yeah, yeah, I, I should. I I don't. I, I'm not gonna let myself go that far. I'm not gonna get to know. I'm not gonna get a statue of Buffy. It's not gonna happen. Number one, she's only five foot four, or she's five foot three, and so she's very very tiny compared to Jason over there. So. <laughs> Oh, I just said, because, uh, yeah, I know her height, so I, I know too much about that girl. Anyway, let's move on to the next one. You're trying to get out of the hole with a shovel at this point. I am. I'm trying to dig myself. I'm just I'm just digging myself deeper. I absolutely dig more in an up motion. You know, you know she's currently, she's, she's a big foodie. Did you know that? Yeah, like, she actually has her own, um, she has her own food company. Yeah, and, and really, she's released a cookbook as well. So, yeah, she's big on nutrition. Gotta give her that. No, I remember the... No, no, not... not <laughs> anyway, released January 4th, 2013. We have the film Crawl Space. Let's take a look at this trailer. I heard that some people watched the wrong one because there was another movie called Crawl Space that came out that was a sci-fi one. Yeah, the sci-fi one in like yeah. a tunnel, in the Aliens tunnel system. Yeah. Right. So we have Crawl Space. What the... Oh, I thought I saw... I, I, for a second, I thought I saw somebody jump in into the screen. Uh, I thought, like, Johnny may have logged in to make fun of us. So, Crawl Space, directed by Josh Stolberg, written by Josh Stolberg and Nick Travella, starring Rally Holmes, Lori Laughlin, Jonathan Silverman, Sterling Bowman, and Steven Weber. Um, the film follows a family that has just taken over uh, a house that uh, they picked up after it was foreclosed on and uh, find themselves terrorized by the former owner of the house who has decided to remain in the property. Um, and, uh, obviously, as Eugene would say, shit gets very real. Um, I will say, I will say this. So, this was a surprising little shocker. Um, I, I dug, I, you, you, uh, you said that you, what, you think it wasn't a great movie. This one actually kind of surprised me because at moments it felt like I was watching, like, something that was on the Hallmark Channel. I was like, there's like, oh, it's it's very simplistically shot. You have like the the classic, but the violence, obviously, the, and the, and there's sex. There's a, there's a lot of sex, and there's you know boobies and you know the requisite horror film tropes. But the the violence of the kills was pretty stellar. It was it was it was shocking because it was so out of nowhere. The film didn't feel like it was set up for such brutality, and that's why I really really dug this one because it put me off guard. I was like, okay, so we've got like creepy guy. He's creepy, but you know, just be, just because he's creepy doesn't mean he he's you know capable of extraordinary violence. This fucker is capable of extraordinary violence, and it was d- to an impressive degree. So I was I was like, kind of like, fuck, dude. So the kills got me. That's why I dug this one. See the kill the kills. It does have some very brutal, some very creative kills. And I will give it that. The thing that kind of got me on this one was just kind of some of the technical aspects of it. Okay. Uh, the to me, the cinematography is kind of lacking at, at moments. Uh, La- whereas, lacking or simplistic? Uh, it, it it just it felt kind of lacking because I, there's there's some films, especially some minimalist horror films that are shot excellent. And even okay, when true, we talked about yeah, you know, we talked about the grudge. Even the grudge was very well shot. The even the twenty twenty one we're talking about. Oh, it is very well. I love the color, the color pan there like this. This it, this one it felt like low budget, and it I can watch a low budget film 
that doesn't feel like a low-budget film. Like, for example, Monster, for example. Monster's okay. clearly a low-budget film, but you never get the feel of it at any point. No, no, watching. that feels way more than it actually did. Because, I mean, this you know, maximizing the, util- the use of everything you have around you. Exactly. Dark environments, light and shadow, rain, sound, utilizing all those to your effects so that if your monster doesn't look great, you can utilize your environment to hide aspects of your monsters. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the thing is, they do it very well in that film. And I was like, this one, it just, it just, it was kind of lacking. So it was like some more on some technical issues and also frogging in real life right. can be something that's very scary. But part of me, and maybe it's just like the Marine part of me, it was like, oh, well, then just get people and clear the house. <laughs> Just, just, of, you know, just, just get a team and just clear, clear the entire house out. Yeah, and just end of movie. <laughs> <laughs> so it, so it reminded. So yes, um, I will admit the the use of essentially the, the the things that things that that kind of like was was really weird was why it felt very very much like I was watching like a Hallmark movie, like a movie I'd see on the Hallmark Channel, like bait, like ripped from the headlines. Ooh, frogging story, and that's all you get. You just get creepy guy, but. The violence set it apart. For, like it's like holy shit. Like you know the, the the killing the old lady who lived next door, mm-hmm. killing the the babysitter. Um, you know the boyfriend. That the you know especially. Uh, oh oh man the the is one of my favorite comedic actors who uh, who had a role in this. And I don't want to um fucking David Kitchener. David Kitchener was the exterminator who was up in this. It was uh, who came oh, up in the yeah. attic, spread in the attic, and the way he. While kind of breaking reality, Christmas lights don't have that kind of tensile strength. But still, that would be a gruesome way to go. And I was like, <laughs> holy fuck, dude. <laughs> it's like seriously dedicated to murdering people. And then, of course, and, and you know, the garbage disposals don't work that way. From someone who's worked in maintenance for years, garbage disposals don't do what that guy did that's that's a supernatural garbage disposal that's what that does so you don't have to be i thought he was gonna put her hair down in the dress like okay that'll be pretty gruesome but it'll just jam up and it'll just stop you have to cut her hair in order to get out of it because once you know there's a safety mechanism but the fact that it was open and like ground her face into it i was like holy fuck (laughs) i've seen what they could do is like yeah it's not realistic at all but still it's a pretty gruesome kill but nonetheless the kills were were on par or were on point i liked them they were inventive and they were brutal but shooting the movie with its pastel color scheme, where the houses and the clothing and everything that's going on created an environment that did not feel like it was going to set up these moments. So it felt very realistic in that respect. Very much like when extreme acts of violence occur in your normal everyday life. I'm saying like they occur all the time. You never expect them to happen. And it's that kind of, you're lulled into that false sense of security that everything around you is just, you know, that's just the way it is. Everything is cool. Everything is calm. Everything kind of gets washed out because you're not paying attention to it because everything is quiet and cool and calm and safe. And you have the safe environments you don't have to worry about. So your environments kind of wash out. You don't really see them for what they are. The details aren't stabbing, you know, staring in your face until all of a sudden, the violence is in front of you. I thought cinematography, uh, from a cinematography standpoint, it was extremely well done. The DP really did a solid job in setting it up so it's like you have this environment, you have this world, this kind of, you have like the house itself and everything's going on that you don't really remember 
until all of a sudden the brutality happens. And then all of a sudden the details are rich and they're crisp and they're clear. Yeah, I can remember all the kills vividly. But certain things about the movie in itself were just kind of like, yeah, but that's what real life is like. You know? And see, and see maybe it's me getting a different take on it, is you remember the kills, but a lot of it was, oh, yeah, of course you remember the kills. Yes, it, it wasn't a garbage. Yeah, Sturkab says it wasn't a, that wasn't a garbage disposal. That was an in sync wood chipper. It absolutely was. It was fucking brutal. Although I will find I, I got a few laughs and something that's something that really endeared to me because this movie came out in 2013, right? Was the jokes. And I don't I can't tell because I can't tell if it was intended or not. Because this movie stars Lori Laughlin. And there were jokes about cheating. And jokes about college and jokes about gaming the system to your own advantage. <laughs> and I'm kind of like, because the way the, the way the family gets the house, the way they get the house is by manipulating the system. The, basically, the dad is the banker. The dad works for the bank. And he had the opportunity to help the previous owner with getting, you know, getting out from underwater of his mortgage. He had, he had like all these different ways he could have helped him, but he ignored it. And he did it purposefully so the bank would foreclose and then he could swoop in and get the house for a steal. Because mm -hmm. there were, because unfortunately the previous owners, his two sons died on the property. They, they died, or his two children, his, uh, his, uh, or his son, or yeah, I think it's two kids. But anyway, they died in a pool. They yeah. drowned in the pool. And because of that, the family was destroyed. They fell behind in their, on their payments and the house is going to be foreclosed on. He could have helped, but he didn't. And so he gained the system to profit for himself and his family so he could acquire the house at a cheap price because it's a really nice house and Lori Laughlin was guilty of doing the shit that she did so I found it to be I don't know if that was intended or if anybody was aware of that or I don't know how Lori Laughlin read the script and said hmm or did the script give her that idea Oh, I could do this oh, she, she got busted what, a couple years ago right yeah, yeah and I was kind of yeah. like holy shit and she was guilty of these things. <laughs> like, did she get the idea from this movie? It was like fun. So I found that to be apropos. I found that to be apropos. And if Raven Darkstar says, "Ah, a foreshadowing movie," <laughs> <laughs> so I found that to be. I was like, "Wow, kind of on point." Um, and, 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 I, and here I was with 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 uh, Jason Silverman, with Jonathan Silverman in the film. I was expecting, you know, maybe some weekend at Bernie's shit. But no, that maybe some week, like a weekend at Bernie's in joke. But no, that never happened. But we did get some Lori Laughlin in jokes, which were quite funny. Um, so I really, really dug that one. Uh, but nonetheless, I really love the way the film was crafted in that respect. And not to mention frogging. Frogging is scary. Obviously, we've heard reports in real life. It's a re it's a real thing that occurs. People staying in people's homes, other knowing whether they're doing it as a prank or they're doing it as a as a challenge. Don't do it as a challenge. Don't. You know, but uh, then people staying after like the house has been foreclosed on, so they find a place to you know in the wall space or in the like the crawl spaces or up in the attic or sometimes in the basement. So and they just continue living there without without your knowledge. I can tell you honestly, I heard about that. I saw that video on YouTube of that guy who had a homeless woman living in his in his house in like this tiny little cubby space in his kitchen up above his kitchen. And he would, she would come out at night and use the bathroom, and like, and she would use the use the kitchen like a bathroom, and she would drink his milk and eat his food, and he kept thinking like, why is my food disappearing? What the fuck? And so finally, he set up a hidden camera, and he caught her. 
It was like, what the shit? Yeah. You know, that and is, then there. Yeah, <laughs> no, as a real life rogging is scary because right. you feel safe in your home. And it's like, well, this is what it's supposed to be. It's like, I feel safe. I'm here. And you invert in terms of, say, a home invasion movie where it's like, oh, well, they're on the outside coming in. This is my home. This is my castle versus somebody already being there. You've already been infiltrated. Yeah. The killer, the killer is already in the house. The call is coming from within the house. Yes. <laughs> that kind of feel. And so, I mean, that's scary because it's like, well, how long have they been there? Especially because I think that the guy you're talking about, he lived there for months. Right. Before he finally, before he finally found out that she was living there, uh, taking stuff. And it's like, what about all the things that you've done? All the things you're like, he could have gotten a shower and walked around naked. And she like peeping at him through like a crack in the wall right. or something like that. Um, and uh, Helen Hunt recently released a film uh, called "I See You" that was that was uh, based that was based on the frogging phenomenon as well. That was a creepy one because that one was well done because it was not only frogging but it was also gaslighting because the person who was frogging was deliberately screwing with the homeowner to make them to make her look crazy. So it's like so it was like no because he because you know. Essentially, kind of like the ghost moving shit around and stuff like that. But yeah, that was frogging and gaslighting to to to. It's kind of like a, I think a revenge ploy. But in this one, the idea that it freaked me it, it, like stories like that, stories like that freaked me out enough that when we bought this house, when we took over this one, we have a, a relatively sizable attic, and we have a large door that comes down with a wooden ladder that folds out and goes up. And that was my first thing. Is I kind of like huh? took the flashlight. I think we're good for like that, and then I locked it. And I because I have an actual like lock on the attic itself, so I just psh, locked it. I haven't been up there since. <laughs> it's just like there's no there's no point. I, there's no there's nothing of consequence up in the attic for me. So, but yeah, I was kind of like, eh. you know. But the idea of that is just creepy as shit, man. And the idea not it's not just a matter of like uh, it's your vo- being you know the voyeur as we voyeur horror being watched when you don't know you're wa- you're being watched. Um, is creepy enough, but that being in your home, sharing your space, knowing that you're being intruded upon without realizing it, how that uh, that sense of control is being taken is has been taken away from you without your knowledge, is really really creepy. It, and it really um, is. and I and I will give some props in this film for how Stephen Weber's character, although at the end, I mean, I, I know some people probably won't see it, but and it's just kind of a spoiler, but the way the very end sequence of the big climax happens and. Um, <laughs> when she shoots the she shoots the thing and it, the explosion she shoots him and he goes off and then the explosion he flies very very meet Joe Black in that respect I was I was quite impressed was like blam ha boom what he flies into the other shit was fucking great but then nobody's concerned that they don't find his body it's kind of like really yeah really? see that was another thing I felt like it was the the cop out kind of ending it was, yeah it was like, the kind of cop they out they don't find his body and then I don't want to super spoil it but then it's like oh we got this house for a steal because it was next to a house that had this event happen it's like Right, and now he's and now he's up in that attic, and he's all like, he's like half of him is melted shit, and he's like, oh, I'm gonna keep doing it. It's like, give me a fucking break, dude. Andrew Rivera says, I feel so lost with this movie. Um, essentially, it was kind of it's just an uh, a frogging story where some where someone is staying in your house without your knowledge, like living in your house without you knowing about it, and it's about a guy who loses his mind 
and after his you know after his house is foreclosed on, he continues living in it, and the person who takes over the house is the banker who allowed the house to be foreclosed on. So without instead of helping him, so. But it, yeah, and Sir Cap says the sheer number of pictures with him and the family asleep. Yeah, the ones that he had posted up all over the all over the inside of his little attic space cubby was creepy. But that also goes to show he was taking pictures with his phone, which means he was taking pictures with his phone, transferring them or taking them, you know, taking them to go get printed, printing out pictures, then coming back to the house. So he was coming and going as he pleases, and yeah. he knew the shutoff code for the alarm. So, cre- yeah. is creepy stuff. Uh, Angel Rivera said, oh, I watched the 1986 Crawl Space. There are actually a couple of movies named Crawl Space that are different. Uh, and there was another one that was a sci-fi one that had aliens and a tunnel system. So, but yeah, there, uh, I sh- that's why I put the poster up on the... We- so, in the, we- in, the, in the Week in Horror YouTube channel, we will, I will always post up the posters for the movie that we're going to talk about. And in the Discord, we put up the trailer for the one that we're going to talk about. So... You can always check with the trailer. You can always check with the poster to see which one you're uh, you're going to be watching. Um, so I apologize about that. I uh, probably should have been a little bit more clear, but uh, my bad. But like that. But so if you got lost in this one, I apologize. All right. Well, oh, I was looking at what ordinary Jeff, ordinary Jeff says. I have a basement, attic, and a crawl space, and I'm on the edge of the woods. I also live alone. You think you live alone? You might want to sweep that a couple of times. Uh, <laughs> <at least once. laughs> you might want to sweep, sweep the house. <laughs> Definitely. Absolutely. I see that we have hit the algorithm because the porn bots are out in force tonight. Yeah. Wow. There's a lot. Mods, you know what to do. Go ahead and do you put Wow. It's just like a surprise how many we're getting. But the question I want to ask the audience, and this goes down to uh, your thoughts on this. Does the does frogging, does that, does that freak you out? Does the phenomena of frogging scare you? Whether it could happen to you or it could happen to somebody else, the fact that it is a real thing, is that something that freaks you out? Maybe anxiety-wise. Let us know down in the comments below or, of course, at weekendhorrorgmail.com or here in the live chat if you happen to be with us. But yeah, definitely take a look at that community tab. But yeah, let us know. Does frogging scare you? Does the phenomena of frogging freak you out? Let us know. All right. Eugene, this one I dug, so. All right. So next. I can't believe you didn't like this movie. What the fuck? This is, there's something about 2000, like mid to late 2000 films, and this falls in the same, I don't know if it's like a stylistic (laughs) look. And like, it looks like all the others. I was so impressed. And you're telling, and then the ending on top of it, like she she like throws him through the the screen, and then it's like, oh, the projector just stops, and I was like, cool. Well, what happens to her? She's and then gone, it just man. ends. Just, let's, go ahead, kick it off. It just man. ends. So we got Midnight Movie released January six, two thousand and nine. Roll it. All right, so that is Midnight Movie, directed by Jack Messett, starring <clears throat> Rebecca Brands, Daniel Bajor, Greg Kolnick, Mandel Mahan, and Stan Ellsworth. And basically, you have a group of people who go to a midnight screening to go check out a film that apparently drove the director crazy, and then they get sucked into the film. 
and they have to try to survive and kill it. And shit gets real. Oh, it really gets it really, it really gets, gets real. real. It gets very very real. So okay, this was a this was a very very. Uh, Sarcasm's right. Sarcasm just posted up. The trailer doesn't do this movie any justice at all. You just get some tidbits. And Rodinellis name says, "Did this film need a two-minute corkscrew sharpening scene?" I guess the answer is yes. It absolutely <laughs> did, because that's a that was a and a very intriguing weapon for a slasher. Multi-purpose in that respect, especially when he gets the stab and then they yank the heart out uh, because it's open. It's flared on the back end, so he stay he impales him with it and then boom pulls his heart. I was like, oh, that. It was a pretty, this was a very very competent meta slasher. I really, really dug this one. It surprised me because the opening of it is very, it's very low budget. And the, but the money went to all the right places. The money went to the care, to the, uh, to the gore. The money went, you know, to the kills themselves. And they put it everywhere they needed, which was, which is always a good, a hallmark of a solid director who knows where to spend money and where to not spend money. We didn't need a whole bunch of money spent in the opening sequence of how the psycho person, how the psycho guy escapes from the theater. We don't need that. What we need is a seriously scary and virtually unstoppable killer that these people have to escape from, which uh, I can tell you, nobody fucking escapes from it. It's the way it goes. But I really, really enjoyed this kind of. It, it kind of, it, it, obviously this came out uh, 2009. So it's at the tail end of kind of like the meta horror uprising where it started in 1996, where it was like all got to be commentary on the genre itself. But, and this one came out, didn't get a lot of fanfare. As a matter of fact, there was another movie called Midnight Movie. It came out in 2009. There was a Japanese film that way overshadowed this. It was probably why this one didn't get a lot of play. But I found this one. I was like, holy fuck. I kind of liked the, the idea of the killer. And I you know, wanted to talk about it. And then... This is how you do it. Characters that you dig, characters that you hate, you know, a killer that you can that you can literally get behind, and a situation you know like that you're playing around in a movie theater. That's what you're doing in a movie theater that's built like a goddamn labyrinth, which is just yeah. you know weird to me. But nonetheless, an intriguing concept: the idea that the killer is moving in between the film they're watching and the the film they're watching and the re, and the real world. As he's killing people and dragging them into the movie itself. And I loved that they didn't waste time with exposition explaining why this is happening. Just that we have a, a director who went insane making this movie. This slasher film. And then was and then wound up killing a whole bunch of people. Was uh, stuck in an insane asylum. And then escaped from the insane asylum to do it again at uh, one year later as a... or. Five years later, I think it was five years later, as this one lone movie theater is about to do a showing of his of his last film before he was incarcerated, before he was uh, uh, put you know put in the uh, the I guess the the happy ward or the the crazy ward, so institutionalized before he was institutionalized. So the killer shows up and things get insane. I dug everything about this one. As far as low budget slashers go, this is how you do it. You know you had. I fucking love the biker dude. I love that character, man. The biker dude was great. You know, the the hateable people were hateable. You know, the the final girl, uh, I dug. I mean, I dug everybody, every aspect of this. And the kills were good. For the money they had to spend, which obviously this was very low budget, literally two locations. The short scene in the opening at the Insane Asylum, 
and the fucking, uh, well, I'll say, and the, uh, and of course the movie theater, and of course all the exterior shots. We have to shoot the movie within a movie kind of thing. Yeah. So, but yeah, this was a fun one, man. Yeah, see, I just, like you said, there's something about this era in filmmaking, and I think it's, you're seeing the uprise of digital cameras, and the fact that low budget still really had to figure out a way to light and shoot with digital cameras just yet, because you can't light the same way as you do for film cameras, and film... Digital cameras have been out since the 70s, but because of the state of the technology, it just wasn't practical enough to use it. So you didn't really start seeing any kind of digital cinema until the early 2000s. And usually it was for B-roll. Um, they used digital cameras and 28 Days Later filming mm-hmm. the abandoned London scene because it was faster to shoot than to load a film canister. So a lot of the shots of uh, Cecilia and Murphy walking around were digital cameras. But even then, it was just sparse during those moments, and they went back to film. Well, as digital as digital cameras are cheaper, lower budget filmmakers, well, we have to lean on it because we can't afford the use of film, which is fine, which is totally fine. But you have this window, and it's really from about 2004 to probably about 2011, where people are kind of trying to figure it out, and everything has this soap opera kind of look right. it's kind of a soap opera lighting and like a film <clears throat> rate for it and it just it looks cheap because high budget films shot during the same time period still look great they still look fine they still look like normal films but the lower budget ones it's still like like people have figured it out now and more and more films are being shot on digital cameras because you get the technologies improved people figure out how to light mm-hmm. it and now you can take a high-end digital camera and a DP that knows what they're doing and a film camera and a DP that knows what they're doing, and honestly, people won't be able to tell the difference anymore. Right. But we're just getting – and it just falls into it, and it just kind of irks my brain at moments <laughs> when I see it. <laughs> I dug it. Um, I really, really enjoyed this particular one. I love that it kind of revived the the concept of the midnight, uh, the midnight movie. The midnight movie, which is kind of our bread and butter here at Weekend Horror, because so many of the films we talked about, especially ones in you know ones in the past, from going all the way back to the '30s, you know, all especially through the '50s and the '60s, Hammer Horror and the like, you know, uh, are essentially midnight movies. And the midnight movie, in and of itself, was a practice that um, I love this callback because few few people today. I would say that like the current generation will remember where the term this would be like midnight movie. Oh, it's a movie that's showing at midnight. But there's a there's a lot of history there, which I loved the I loved the 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 meta there because essentially it's, it's saying the types of people that will come and watch these things because the midnight movie was a practice that emerged back in like the I think the mid uh, uh, maybe the early fifties of television stations around the the U.S. that aired low-budget genre films during their late-night programming to kind of fill the space. Because they realized, you know, after a certain after a certain uh, time, usually around midnight, you, you remember back in those days, oh, you yeah. stayed up watching TV too long, you eventually get to the, uh, the anthem uh, getting played, and then the station goes off the air. And then they're back up at like 5 a.m. for, you know, like the, the morning news or something like that, and then it carries on. But they realize that's a lot of dead space that we can play with. It's like, why aren't we showing programming? Why can't we just put like a movie there that'll eat up like an hour and a half of time? No one's got to be on live, and we're just like playing it. It's like it's like pre-recorded. 
So yeah. they decided, why don't we show? The, the people who were up late at that time are typically going to be, they're going to be your night owls, and they're going to be people that kind of live a different a different style of life than the people who have your regular 9 to 5 jobs. It's kind of your alt crowd, were the ones that were staying up late, that had late jobs. It, it speaks to a different, to a kind of a different um, mentality. And so showing scary movies or showing genre films as late night programming uh, and sometimes even bringing in a host, very much like uh, like um, Elvira or going back to uh, Vampira and that style, depending upon what the uh, the the uh, broadcasting station was trying to get across, who who they were trying to like really bring in the whole yeah, the whole creature features. Thank you, wrote it in the same. How creature features got started yeah. was you know five <laughs> five a.m. for the farm report, <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> and so. Uh, as, as, a, as a kind of phenomenon, the midnight, and then there became midnight screenings of offbeat movies that began in the 70s that took this inspiration where theaters could make money in their off hours by showing these late night films, very similar to, like Sarcasm just brought up, Rocky Horror Picture Show. You know, and like new, it, this really kicked off in New York. New York was the centerpiece of this because Broadway is littered with these kind of like, dingy little movie houses that show Grindhouse and other stuff that that's the inspiration that kind of uh led white led Rob Zombie to develop the white zombie kind of structure kind of the, you know New York and the un, see the underbelly of uh 70s New York and so with screenings of like El Topo and stuff like that so eventually spread across the country it took on it became very very uh popular as uh in the counter in the counterculture and then the national success of Rocky Horror Picture Show really kicked it into high gear because it showed the changing economics of the film exhibition industry and how it had altered the nature of the midnight movie phenomenon. And so it became a major thing, which unfortunately has kind of dropped off with, I think, in my opinion, the way of looking at the history of it, with the advent of cable. Because now you can just get movies all the time. So now it's kind of lost its... its Ambience, the, you know, the, the classic, like, I'm going to watch, you know, I'm watching NBC or CBS or ABC or something like this, or I'm watching one of the one of the other stations. Um, I remember there was a show, there was like Channel 4. When I was growing up, it was Channel 4, Channel 21. When I was growing up, it was like Channel 21 um, showed movies at like 4 p.m., showed like a horror movie at 4 p.m., and then a horror movie at 10, and then another one at midnight, and then another one at like uh, 4 in the morning. And so I would, so I would be like, oh, I can catch this. That this will be on at this time. And that's how I watched a lot of the kind of like obscure horror films that I came up with that that that, that I remember from my youth. And so, but I think the advent of cable, of dedicated channels, and of course, you know, like with HBO, when HBO, like I remember when HBO was just back to back film, 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 mm-hmm. film, film, before they went really hard into the uh, kind of like reality production or something like that or doing documentary stuff I mean they stuff. started doing their own like TV shows because they yeah. started doing Oz and Sopranos and so forth and so forth yeah Taxi Cab Confessions and shit like that yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Dream On Dream On when they got into original original programming is yeah. when you know because uh, I remember when HBO was just back to back movies like all the time yeah that so was, that was it you, it was just a special order on your cable package but right. going into the midnight the midnight movies you would see this a lot in a lot of the indie theaters. I'm not talking like mm-hmm. the AMCs or Cinemarks or something like that. But if you go to, there's one in Dallas called the Inwood. And yes, yeah. that's where I saw. That's where I saw Blair Witch Project. 
I saw uh, I saw Fight Club there. Nice. Uh, which was Inwood uh, always does good shit. They yeah. always do, yeah. And then so the Inwood, they would do a midnight movie on Saturday night. So Saturday night's midnight. It was something that um, was already it wasn't something currently in theaters. It was always something a callback, a cult classic. So yeah, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I got a chance to see uh, Aliens in theater nice. because they brought it back on one of the original prints of it um fight club a um, bunch of these others and it was always an added it was always a little bonus because they would have games ahead of time they would have trivia um i won they did it when they i went to fight club they did a contest on stage and i won and i won a bar of soap like nice. it, was little, yeah, it was like a little <laughs> like a little like prize but it got to the point where you would get these people that would go to these midnight screenings, not even caring whatever the film is. If yeah. it was good, then you sat and watched it because you're watching a good film. If it's a bad film, then you laugh and you can make fun of it either way. Right. And so it kind of becomes this own culture of this own culture that kind of develops. And I think that's where obviously the biggest one being the Rocky Horror Picture Show. This is how I think The Room really got famous because it started doing midnight screenings and word of mouth and this is where you start getting these cult films and that would come in and you would see and then tommy wiseau is probably a vampire and then tommy so. wiseau is probably a vampire rodan ls name says i got to see a midnight showing of army of darkness with an hour q a with bruce campbell that's awesome awesome that's, that's yes. freaking badass uh th this kind of th this kind of showing was how uh, my friends and i got to see uh labyrinth on the big screen Original, like, original reel. They brought it out, fired it up, and so they and they, it was cool because they showed Labyrinth. But before that, they showed two episodes of the Storyteller. Yes. Uh, so we got to see that. But uh, but watching Labyrinth on the big screen, oh shit! I love just getting you know getting the throwbacks like that. It's friggin' awesome. Yeah, uh, let me see. There's a uh, lot of stuff you can see, um, like say Labyrinth. We talk about aliens. You talk about uh, some of these others. Like we never got a we never got a chance to see them in theater. Right, we we never did. So, begin, just getting the opportunity to see them is incredible. Tony Regime says a cinema near me used to have two hand puppets that would emerge from either end of the curtains and mime to the ad, mime to the adverts. That's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. Let's all go to the let's all go to the lobby. Let's all <laughs> <laughs> the snacks dancing. Name Nameboy Thirteen says I worked till one a.m. in high school. I saw lots of weird shit on HBO when I got home. Hell fucking yeah! It was HBO Cinemax or Skinemax as it was back in the day, and of course Showtime. Um, where you can see, you can see. I mean, you know, back when you had the big three, those are the big three that kind of HBO kind of kicked the whole thing off. And then you also had Showtime, and you had uh, Skinemax, where they showed all. Skinemax was more for all like the low rent shit, like low yeah. rent stuff. Like you know, the, the we, we would we, uh, we're, we're, you know like HBO and Show Showtime were too sophisticated for that. Actually, HBO was kind of the middle child. Showtime was like we're too sophisticated for that shit. And like fucking Cinemax over here, like yeah, Red Shoe Diaries, baby. <laughs> fucking a it's like i remember those days and you could catch you know obscure weird films and then thanks to things like you know comedy central bringing us mst3k um but i think it was i think what it came down to was cable kind of changed things for us and i like i dug this one because one it's a smartly made film if you have a low budget and you're gonna shoot this is what you're gonna shoot for this is this is what you go for. Know where to spend your money. You're making a fucking slasher movie. You spend it on your killer. You spend it on your kills. That's it. 
Fuck the special effects. Because there are some special effects in this. But you don't worry about it. Use the basic means. If you're making a slasher movie, people there to see the slasher. Make your killer look good. Make the kills look great. That's it. Everything else will fall into place. Know what, know your audience. Know what you're going for. Don't treat them like children. And just make a fucking splatter movie. And this one worked in spades. A very unique killer with a unique premise who's virtually unstoppable. Because the only reason the, the movie ends is because the fucking reel runs out. Yeah. Uh, and I dug that. The medic and, and and smartly written a, a nice little meta commentary on a kind of bygone tradition of of the genre, and I was like, oh yeah, and it kind of made me long for that. And then the kind of people that come out to this, you've got the girl who works in the theater and her boyfriend, you've got the biker dude with his girlfriend's like, yeah, we're gonna watch this movie, babe. That's right, and he's like a hard ass until you know he fucking gets killed. And then the, the, the douchebags that come out and watch this. I loved it. I love how it all brought, it kind of came together. That's why I dug this movie. I'm surprised you didn't like it. Yeah, I see. It, like, it was just some technical aspects that get, really got me on it. Um, that it just, it, it irks in my brain. Because it's, it's shot the same as like The Butcher. This was not nearly that bad. Okay. The butcher was fucking atrocious. The production design. <laughs> this the, okay. Midnight movie. At least, at least in this one, they knew how to light and capture sound. Yeah. <laughs> in midnight movie, uh, the production design is way better. Way, way, way miles, miles ahead for the butcher. But I don't know if something about like the frame rate or something where it just is as that soap opery. Uh, type of feel, right? And it just like around 2011, it stops, and I've never seen a film really do it since. Um, so I just I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, so I actually I want to ask the audience because this movie is very meta, and I really do enjoy meta films. What is your favorite meta horror film? There's a lot of them out there. Um, I think one of the go-tos is probably Scream. Um, right. You have, it was a new nightmare uh, from the Nightmare on Elm Street. It was pretty meta. Um, there's a there's dozens upon dozens of them out there. So what is your favorite meta horror film? Let us know in the comments below or shoot us an email at weekendhorror at gmail.com. I'm reminded, and, and uh, while well, Scream is kind of a go-to, I'm kind of reminded of Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. That's um, a good one. Was pretty impressive as far as meta as far as meta horror goes. I kind of dug what they did with that. The the uh, the serial killer, the serial killer that's trying, and that's the thing is that uh, Behind the Mask came out. Uh, if I remember correctly, when that movie came out, um, so that movie came out in 2006. So that was 10 years after Scream. And Rodan Ellisame just brought up Cabin in the Woods, King of Meta. And I can understand that. I can understand why um, why that could be the case because Captain the Woods was just so brilliant. And New Nightmare was also very, very good as well. Thank you, Travis Brown said New Nightmare. Mm -hmm. But I really dug uh, Leslie Vernon uh, just because the idea of the killer wanting to document his own stuff, to make, to make a movie about himself, doing the things that you would see in a movie, I, I, I just it, the way it was portrayed, I think it captured the generation very, very well. The almost uh, millennial take on what horror is, what horror means, and you could see how different it was from the way 
you know, people of like Eugene, like Eugene and Johnny and myself and Aaron and Alex and, you know, all the way we look at the genre and what the genre means to us and the way it looks to the next generation. I thought that that film encapsulated it perfectly. And so uh, it's grown on me over time. It's like I go back and I occasionally will see it and I'll be like, you know, I'm going to sit down and watch this again. And every time I watch it, I'm like, yeah, I fucking get it. Oh, yeah, it's, it's a yeah. solid it's a solid movie because you have it's like so many people idolize Michael Myers and Jason and so forth and so forth. And so you understand when Leslie Vernon because in that movie, all those killers are real. Right. You can you can it basically shows your face because he's a fan of him. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to recreate these kills of that happened at Crystal Lake. And then, of course, it's very end. He turns on the filmmakers and starts smoking them one by one. Um, but that was a, it. Was a very well done movie in terms of, of meta movie and the um, commentary in that. Like you know, the people making the things, the people shooting the things, just don't fucking get it. Yeah, and they that you know, just I just I fucking love that. I just it, it's it's so smartly done, and I don't think it's the gets the praise that it deserves. Uh, Sir Casimsley says I'm kind of leading to Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. And Rodan Sam says, Student Bodies, the first horror meta. I have no idea how that movie, how Student Bodies was not a National Lampoon film. <laughs> I have no idea. I would never hurt a fly. And as the, and the fly dies, and it's like, you know, because the body count is going up. One, two, three, four, five, six. Then she's like, I'd never hurt a fly. Six and a half, six and a half. Come on. <laughs> the killer the kill is called the breather. Killed someone with a fucking paperclip. Put some in garbage bags. It's like, you know, kill someone with an eggplant. How is that not a National Lampoon film? I have no fucking clue. But yes, I would agree. Student Bodies is probably the first real meta horror film. Absolutely. George Lucas is going to sue somebody. <laughs> oh, but definitely let us know in the comments below or at weekendhorror at gmail.com what, in your opinion, is the best meta horror. All right, we got one more. I, and I know you're you're just looking for it. Oh, man. I know you are. Oh, Fucking man. It's so bad. Let's, 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 let's chew it back. Let's chew it back. Because there's, so there, there's some things to say here. <laughs> so uh, when a movie has this many titles, you need to be concerned. So the one we're talking about, the last one we're talking about tonight, came out January 7th, 2004. And it is The Thing Below. A.K.A. It Waits Below, A.K.A. Sea Ghost, A.K.A. Ghost Rig 2, The Legend of the Sea Ghost. <laughs> it's its own sequel. <laughs> it's its... What the fuck? Let's check out this trailer. <laughs> this is what we do for... This is what we do to ourselves for you. It's all for you. It's, it's all, all for you. For you. <laughs> I don't know what's real anymore. Uh, <laughs> wow. Oh, man, I was unprepared. So, <laughs> The Thing Below, a.k.a. It Waits Below, a.k.a. Sea Ghost, a.k.a. Ghost Rig 2, The Legend of the Sea Ghost. <laughs> oh, directed by Jim Wynorski, who didn't even use his real name. He went under Jay Andrews in this one. Written by Rawl Inglis, get this, written by Rawl Inglis, Keith Shaw, credited as Lindsay James, and William Lang uh, Langloy, who wasn't even credited. That many writers on this piece of shit. Starring Michael Rogers, Billy Warlock, Warren Christie, Kurt Max Runt, Catherine Loft, uh, Catherine Loft, Hagwist, and Peter Graham Goudreau. Um, 
you heard it in the trailer. The film essentially follows a group that are doing a delivery to this top-secret drilling, plat drilling platform in the Gulf of Mexico that raises a dormant alien creature from the depths, and there's kind of a subplot going on where the government knows about it, and they've been doing experiments and shit, and then the creature gets loose because the scientists in this, in this movie are the dumbest motherfuckers to ever walk the planet. I don't know why they're scientists. Um, and we don't, don't cart the fragile container with the alien life for a minute don't walk it around by hand when you're on a ship in the middle of a fucking typhoon or at a storm don't do why why anyway have you ever heard of a fucking dolly yeah okay i work in maintenance well, maybe the, like some reinforced glass something so give me fucking strap the bitch down what the fuck move it on a gurney what are you doing anyway but once loose, the creature goes on a murderous rampage and it telepathically exploits the fears and desires of anyone it comes across in order to lure them in and then squeeze them to death or something. I don't fucking know because it's all we ever see. And so it creates hallucinations and does shit like that. So um, <sighs> there's not a lot really going on in this particular movie, and which is a shame because... And the reason I was kind of looking forward to this is obviously 100% this movie is a fucking deep rising uh, hobgoblins rip. Because it's deep rising because it's a big monster in the, in the you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a big monster in the ocean oh, with tentacles and shit. Still tentacles and yeah, deep rising, yeah. big explosion at the end where they go flying. That's it's deep rising all the way. But the monster has is like the hobgoblins in the hobgoblins movie because we did hobgoblins versus ghoulies in the bloodbath in our bloodbath debates. And the Hobgoblins did that. They made you see shit that you wanted to see. I was like, holy fuck. And of course, one character sees a hot chick who wants to have sex with him before she kills him. And that's the same thing that happened here. Exactly. So it's, yeah, it's Deep Rising meets Hobgoblins. With it, fucking, it, with, what kind of CGI is this, man? PlayStation? It like they didn't have the budget of either because Deep Rising, I think Deep Rising came out, what, 98? Yeah. Deep Rising, at least, I think so. Deep Rising yeah, was at least like decent. And that looks way better. Way, way better than this PowerPoint, like tentacle. <laughs> that makes it PowerPoint. <laughs> I was thinking like PlayStation One CGI. I'm like, what is this fucking like you know original PlayStation Resident Evil shit going on, man? It's like I was thinking I was gonna see like you know fucking clipping and shit with the thing. It's like bumping into the walls. <laughs> I was it, and I was really. Uh, it was okay. It was. I laughed. It was un, obviously unintentional, especially how because the the everyone in the movie is stupid. Everyone, uh, the monster is dumb. The plot is dumb. Everyone is just dumb decisions all over the place. Let's just keep doing stupid things, and stupid things will keep happening to us, and we're all fucking shocked why the stupid things keep keep happening to us. I don't know how this fucking movie got made, um, or who thought it'd be great. I mean. To rip off some of the, because Deep Rising was an okay film, it was meant to be a, it was meant to be a King Kong prequel before that got canceled. But they took the, I mean, Monsters from the Deep are one thing, and utilizing the Hobgoblins' uh, power, that power of those monsters, sort of like this mod, this alien creatures doing this. Yes, this film is classic kind of popcorn nonsense. Although you'd be hard pressed to like if you saw it like Sea Ghost, what? And I wanted to, the, the big thing I really want to talk about is the missed opportunity. This could have very easily been, if, I mean, I saw some semblance of, uh, uh, there was Stop some attempt. Stop I know, no, I'm trying, no, I'm trying to find a way to word it. 
there was some attempt here to do something Lovecraftian. Some attempt. Like, if you this is a Reddit thread, and this is an attempt was made. And obviously, it's an abject failure. Okay? So, it comes down to it. I could see where the writer, the multiple writers that were in this. And I could see why one person didn't want to go by his name, and one person was fucking uncredited. They didn't want to be associated with this. But there was one person who was. There was one person who put his name in this. Just, yep, I will be associated with this. This will go into my fucking IMDb. Boom. I, did, I wrote this movie. I can see where somebody was trying to do something. It's the only possible thing I could say about this movie is I can see what they were going for. I imagine, I like to imagine, <laughs> I like to imagine that on paper, this film looked much, much different than it came out. When it was written, essentially they, they, they say we're going to make a movie. What's the movie about? The movie's going to be about a monster in the ocean that gets drudged up by you know by the scientist and it, it gets loose and attacks people by affecting their their by telepathically or psychically attacking them by invoking their worst fears or their, or their greatest desires just look at that premise right there that is some deep lovecraftian shit right there well yeah it is but even like the fact of how stupid these characters are <laughs> it means that movie's bad on paper like you can have a movie that's like Okay, on paper it seemed really good, and it's like, it's just poor direction, poor editing, right. or just like that. That happens, and a movie can go bad at so many stages in production. This is or pre bad. or pre-production or pre-production. <laughs> I I just it's so bad on so many levels, and I don't know if it's like a. They ran out of effects budget of the movie, the production design as a whole. Even aside from the CGI, the production design looks cheap. Right. It very, looks very like much so. They had they found a small warehouse, not like a sound studio, but maybe a small warehouse that was maybe uh, I don't know, four thousand square feet, and they just built everything in it because as long as you keep it kind of hazy and you have a lot of haze and fog and you keep the shots really tight. You don't miss the fact that it doesn't even look like the ship that they're on. <clears throat> right, right. It, <sighs> There's so many things that are taken from other more solid horror films in this. Obviously, they rip, they rip the monster from... It's a deep rising monster. It's got hob, the, the powers from hobgoblins. The setting itself is pretty much virus and sphere where everything is cramped and it's... And it's uh, where everything is supposed to be essentially... You're, you're trapped in a small space with the monster that's affecting what you see. And so... I mean, there's so many things. And Mystique, I could say this could possibly be one of J.M. Truth's productions. It was that fucking bad. You could see, but the, the one thing that aggravated the one thing that aggravated me most about this particular one and was that was the sheer lack of Im imagination when it came to what, what to this okay, when it came to what they what they had to work with. Look at the sets that they had. <clears throat> you had that kind of production quality. You have because sets themselves are expensive. You and I can both attest to that. Mm -hmm. You know, constructing your sets, you know, art direction itself are the reason. The reason art direct there's a reason art direction is its own fucking department. It's going in and having somebody look at it. This is what I'm working with. This is what it has to look like. Now we need to find all the pieces to make the set look right, so that when the actors come in, they're working in an environment that actually is conducive to the story that they're telling. So you have these magnificent spaces, long dark corridors, 
cramped, tiny spaces, laboratories, all the shit set up. You had so many, the, the filmmakers here had so many opportunities to do really, really good shit. And they did absolutely nothing with them. There was no imagination done in this. Now, I understand the kind of paint-by-numbers that movies sometimes are, especially when it comes to studio interference. The studio demands one thing. We come in, we shoot the movie. They want it a particular way done. I get that. But there is some leeway as far as creativity that the, product, that, the, that, the, that the filmmaking team has. How you light a scene. The sounds you capture. Specific lines at specific times. things, Small details in the script. You want to convey the story a particular way. But all of these were missed opportunities. And all of them were fully within the realm of control of the filmmakers themselves. This was not EPs coming in and pissing all over everything. This was not the studio on the phone saying, these dailies fucking suck. That was not this. This was lazy fucking filmmaking. You give me those fucking sets and a budget to play with, yeah, I'll churn out something solid because every single piece is important to the pie. The lighting, the sound, the art department, you know, your, 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 the blocking, how your actors move about the space. All of this is vital. Okay, how they interact with one another. These things could have done so much better. I've seen fucking... Uh, there's a movie that I remember that was so intensely low budget. It was called Low. And it was an experimental horror film about a guy who goes into hell to look for his girlfriend, the woman he falls in love with. Okay? Completely, totally experimental. And this thing was shot on a budget, I think, of like fucking like eight grand. And it, they made... But they made use of every single one of those dollars and told a fucking compelling movie. See, this is what I, this is what I honestly I believe it happened was because it being low budget, um, it was a group of friends, and we're like, okay, we raised some money because I don't. If this is a studio film, it, it surprises me. Uh, it's like, okay, we have some money, and we're gonna hire people who think that they know what they're doing, right. And it could have been some people fresh out of film school who just had a budget way over their head that are an idea that was way too big. Oh, the thing got right. away from them. And things got away from them because uh. it, you're right. It is, it's lazy, incompetent filmmaking because you do not need a lot of money to make a good film. Another example is Primer. I think Primer costs $7,000. Oh, Primer, Primer is magnificent. Exactly. And I mean, they just, they built their time machine and they shot like in their house. Right. Um, and we're able to utilize everything. And it's like, if you can get people that are up and coming, that not quite at that professional level, but they're studying it and they have some good work, those are the people that you can hire on the cheap to get a good product. Like you look for, when you look for actors in a low budget film, you're going to spend about 40% of your budget on your cast members. And what you do is you look for people who are about to break through. Because they don't, they're not the B-listers, not the A-listers yet, so they can't command that type of money. But they're good enough to get to that. So you, what you hope is they do your film, and then that next project, they, that's their big break. Right. And then you release your film on the, on the uh, coattails of their big break, so people go, oh... 
yeah, Annie, Anya Taylor-Joy is in this film also. Let me go check it out. Or Miles Teller or some of these people that are really just now hitting the A, the A-lister status. So that's what you really want. And you do the same thing with your cinematographers, with your art directors, and those people who are looking. They've put in their dues. They're looking for that great opportunity to finally break through who they want to use it on their reel to get that Hollywood deal. But this film is not the case. This film is cheap. People didn't care, right. or they were just incompetent, and it was lazy. The overall standard that they set for themselves is low. Yeah. So Paracord Princess asks a quick, ask, asks a quick question. Paracord Princess where, it says, where can we see these bloodbath debates? The bloodbath debates are available um, wherever you listen to podcasts. So if you are listening on Anchor, uh, Anchor.fm, or if you're listening on Spotify or like this, we always post those up. So those, the Bloodbath Debates and the After Darks are all available wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, I, if you check out Anchor.fm, you can see them all there. We are up to like, I think this month we're doing uh, Bloodbath 37. So we've done, and it's, you know, I, I love them. I think they're, I think they're, we, uh, they're really, really fun. But uh, yeah, check them out wherever you listen to podcasts. And then, and it's also available. You get early, you sorry, you get early access via Patreon. And then Andrew Rivera says, uh, says, like the Geico, I am a space monster commercial. No, because all of the CGI in this film was overlaid. So, well, like, like literally, they took the footage and then just laid the CGI into it. So they would have people running through a thing. And so there was, it, it was as cheap as you could possibly make it. There's never a moment where the CGI is integrated like 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 legitimately as part of the deal so for example you have a sequence where people are running down a hallway and one of the big ass tentacles is chasing them the tentacle is always separate from everything else because it was literally just set within the film yeah and so it's operating there so there was never any kind of like need for green screen essentially everybody's just reacting to something that they're being told is there and then then you have the tentacle thing but because those things look so terrible I can see why they opted for the why it was like well we don't have a lot of money so let's go with it almost seemed like the kind of the psychic attacks and the psychic manipulation shit was kind of um so it was kind of like a like a like a an afterthought because they realized we don't have a lot of money to do the CGI and this is when the CGI is going to come out really really terrible because it's really really cheap so let's come up with a way of showing of like trying to show the monster affecting people without having to lean into CGI. And that was all of the hallucinations and all that shit. So, but just an absolute waste of opportunity and, you know, what they should have, what they should have done. Now, what I'm really, really curious. Yes, yeah, so two, yeah, Nocturnal Lux, good to see you, bud. Thanks so much for being here. Says, uh, holy 2.4 on IMDb. Yeah, it's not it's good. Bad. There, it's, it's, it's bad. It's not even entertaining enough to be like to make fun of to do like a like riff tracks where you get your get your friends together and you just laugh at stuff it's not even that entertaining yeah and um, it was just, it's just like you know it's just it, sad it's just sad it would just be sad if we were to do that now something that's curious and another reason i kind of wanted I, i'm glad that we're talking about this one is because we got an interesting comment on youtube and i wanted to and i don't know if you saw it as a matter of fact let me see um I don't know if you saw it, but I had to take a picture of it. I posted it to it. So, back in season two, season two, episode fourteen. This okay. was before we were even doing the thumbnails that we currently do now. Okay, season two, episode fourteen. We covered a movie called Night Feeders. I don't okay. even know if you remember it. <laughs> so barely remember it. Night Night Feeders 
was just, ugh. Night Feeders was just awful. It was, it was really, really bad. And uh, we, I think, I think uh, we, we appropriately shit on the movie. And I probably tried to polish it in some way, in some sense. It's like, at least they got it in the can. We, at least we can give them that credit. But somebody commented, and I had to say it. So the comment was, LOL, Night Feeders was made for $55,000 and grossed well over half a million. How well did your movie sell? But I see you did get 23 thumbs up on your channel after a full year. Maybe you should worry about your own lack of talent. Wow. And I was like, I, and I, and I didn't know what to comment to it. I did comment. I just said, it's like, dude, man, you, you know, it's, it, it's called an opinion. It's like just our opinion on the film. But it was so, it's like, that's so specific, you know, to come now, obviously, logically speaking. The profit on a movie or the box office take on a film or however, whether it's distribution or whatever, does not entail that your film is good. <laughs> it, is, it is not logically entailed. But I wonder if this person, I'm curious and I'm wondering, first first curiosity, was that person who let that comment involved in the making of Night Feeders? I don't know. First of all, that would be cool. <laughs> that would be cool as shit if it was. The the, the name that they posted on their, their YouTube account um, is not is not any of the names that were associated with the movie. So I couldn't find that movie. I couldn't make that connection. So I have no idea. Okay. Two, it's possible that we could get another comment like this for the thing below because this movie is fucking trash. This movie is absolute shit. So I found it to be interesting that we got a comment like that because it came out of nowhere on a, on a movie we talked about back in season two, which I think was... Season two, episode fourteen. So that would have been like, like late, like, uh, like late twenty twenty. Is when we talked about that movie. So I was like, I was like, damn. And uh, if that person is watching, you know, uh, like I said, uh, box office take. And I think Johnny commented to you as well that box office take does not logically entail that your film is good. And two, opinions are a thing. We are allowed to have them. We're not saying that they're worth anything, but we are also filmmakers. And we've worked, we've worked in the industry for some time, doing various things. I'm a stand, I'm, I'm a writer, you know. Eugene is a director and a DP. But we've all worn many hats. We know what it takes. We've made our own stuff. So you can check out Eugene's IMDb. You can check out my IMDb. You know, check out Johnny's IMDb. We we are all professionals working in the industry. This is just our opinion. That's why it's filmmakers on filmmakers, essentially what we're talking about. But uh, Plus, on top of that, is you have to understand how budgets work. Okay, it made half a million <laughs> dollars in theaters. That's not a lot of money. <laughs> That's not. You could accidentally put your film, let's say you get a distribution, and your film could throw into a couple hundred theaters. With no trailer, no marketing, and you let it into theaters for a month or two, you'll probably make half a million dollars just because people go, oh, let me go check that out. doesn't mean they liked it. It doesn't mean anything like that. It just, just because it's just out there. And so, and secondly, on top of that, when you're talking about like, say, for $55,000, $55,000 can mean a bunch of th- different things. You have several different parts of budget. You have cash in hand. And then you have the overall value of your film. Those are two completely different numbers. The mm-hmm. cash in hand is what you actually dollar for dollar put towards making your film. 
there are other things that have value that say, for example, you have like in kind. So let's say you shoot at your buddy's house and because your buddy's house, you film there for free. So cash wise, you're not paying anything, but that still has a value. So when you put the overall value of your film, that comes as what's called in kind. So you, if you would normally say get a house, get a house for a thousand dollars a day, and you shot at your buddy's house for three days, so you the value of that would be three thousand dollars. But in can in cash wise, it's zero. So you never really know. So that's how people will inflate a lot of times. But going back to it, if they made $50 million off of Night Feeder, then you know what? You won. You got it. Uh, you, you Obviously, you're if, on if you, something. If, you, if they Blair Witched that motherfucker, 60 grand, in the, uh, 60 grand spent, 280 million worldwide, sure. Yeah, you got sure. it. Sure, we'll hand it to you on a fucking plate, man. Worldwide phenomena. Inspires a franchise, good to go. I'm not seeing the Night Feeders franchise. And as a matter of fact, if I remember correctly, because Night Feeders was about a uh, how a, me- a meteor crashes in the woods and it releases a bunch of monsters that come out at night and then these four deer hunters out in the woods uh, become the hunted. You know, the hunter becomes the hunted kind of thing. And then, you know, that's what it is. But if I remember correctly, uh, director Eduardo Sanchez, who was one of the directors, that's, this is one of the big commentaries we had was Eduardo Sanchez, who was one of the directors of the Blair Witch Project. He directed his second, his solo for solo film was a movie called Altered about four friends who are redneck hunters who encounter an alien and then then end up dealing, they get abducted and then, you know, and then deal with it. That movie was far superior to Night Feeders. And they both came out the same year. So that's how you shoot a movie. Eduardo Sanchez literally shot your fucking shot that same movie. Hunter, Redneck Hunters, Encountering Aliens, exact same movie. And it was far fucking better because... <laughs> far better. Rodan says, what? There's not a Night Feeders franchise? Unacceptable. <laughs> <laughs> Unacceptable. But Altered was a good fucking movie. And not to mention it also it also starred Brad William Henke in it, who recently oh sadly also recently passed away. I fucking loved him. I loved his character work. Um he was in uh Spirals, he was in uh he was in Altered, he also was uh Piscatella in fucking um Orange is the New Black. God, he was a fantastic actor. He was a damn shame to lose him. But but yeah, and you know, that just goes to show that the problem the problems with night feeders went far beyond just the amount of money that was spent on that because you had another director tell the exact same fucking movie with and no A-listers at the time you had no A-listers in that movie Jamie Nash screenplay Eduardo based on a story by Eduardo Sanchez so he came out and he did this movie about hunters in the woods encountering aliens in the exact same fucking movie and he knocked it out of the goddamn park there's more that goes into it than just the just the money the money you spend and the money you make it also comes into do you actually respect the fucking genre? You yeah. know? And I get and I get the and sure and sure. I unfortunately don't have anything to throw out there that would be like, hey, well actually technically because uh, you know I you know, said you'd be like, I think there are examples of our talent out there, your talent especially, and the things that I've written that you've gotten that we've that we've gotten to, to shoot to, that we've gotten to shoot and the things that I've put out there that I think are quite good, but that's up for other people to decide. But when it comes down to it, you know, it was a commentary on the film. Filmmakers on filmmakers. 
Night Feeders was fucking trash. Altered was how you should have done it. Hey, unless of course, you. unless of course. Let me see. Let me let me see something real quick. Because Altered came out straight to DVD, December nineteenth, two thousand six. So that was late in the year. So Night Feeders. Um, I can't even remember when it came out. Obviously, it came out also. Wait, no. If it came out in December four, that would have been late in the year too. Those movies came out roughly near the same time. Yeah. Because we because we changed seasons in September. Yeah. So 14 weeks after the middle of September. 12. That's like fucking January. No, that's like that's like December as well. Huh. Um, the thing is, is this. A bad movie is a bad movie. And on top of that, honestly, we'll talk about uh, low budget films and versus high budget films and all sorts of kind of stuff. But the thing is this. Uh, a good movie to a good movie regardless of budget. Right. There are plenty of examples of low-budget films that are phenomenal. And I know everybody Sir, watching this can think of... Sir Kaz was brought up. Time Crimes is an amazing low-budget... Uh, it was a Spanish film um, about a dude about a dude in a time loop trying to break the time loop by uh, and having to commit murders and shit. Time Crimes was amazing. Odds was amazing. And I think Odds was literally two people in a fucking room. Yeah. So, yeah, it can be done. Sarcasm, you were 100% great. It can be done with the right elements in the right place. And I think that there has to be some level of respect for the genre and some sort of, there's got to be love for the genre there. This, you know? this is the thing is, you have to care about the film. A lot of these really bad films, like The Thing Below and Night Feeders and all these others, is they don't care. Because we can recognize when someone tried hard, let's say they just hit the mark. But they try. I will always respect somebody that makes a film and they put their heart into it. It may still not be a good film, but hey, you tried, you risked it, you put it out there. I will always give you props for that. It's the films where it is clearly no one care. Things like right. The Thing Below, films like The Butcher, and so <laughs> forth and so forth, where it's like, no. You, everybody was there for a paycheck. No one cared. They probably didn't even do a second take of anything because they're like, eh, it's just good enough. We'll fix it in post. Just and get it, yeah. I can see our live chat is creating the Night Feeders franchise. <laughs> um, so, I, so I think there was, I think we've got Night Feeders 2, Electric Feederoo. <laughs> and we've got Night Feeders 3, Feeders in the Hood. <laughs> and we've got uh, Night Feeders 4, In Space. Of course, that has to go to space. Yeah, of course it does. Uh, Tony Regime says, Bad Taste and Brain Dead were both low budget and both were fantastic. They absolutely were. But of course, that's fucking Peter Jackson, so everything he touches is gold. Um, God, you know, I think, I think everything he touches is gold, and I always go back to the fucking Frighteners. God damn, I love that fucking movie. I love that fucking movie. Michael J. Fox, fucking D. Wallace, you know, Peter Jackson, mm-hmm. you know, ev- oh, fuck, that movie was good. John Aston, fucking hell. But given that we were talking about the thing below here, and we mentioned a lot of others, oh, I have Night Feeders Five, the new meals. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking brilliant. Night Feeders Six in New York, Feed or Feeders Take Manhattan. I love it. So Night Feeders Seven, the mutation. <laughs> it took us that long to get to it. We've created the Night Feeders franchise. Now we just need movies to fill those slots. So we want to ask the audience. 
As far as movies like this, obviously anyone who would love, uh, anyone who loves love for this is obviously, I mean, I think is a guilty pleasure, but we all have our guilty pleasures. I honestly think that, that despite all of its faults, the thing below is kind of like your, is kind of popcorn nonsense. It's a movie that kind of plays in the background or maybe something that you throw on and just, you know, you don't really pay attention to. It's just, you know, kind of one of those things. Or you, you watch it just to laugh at it because it's what it is. It's kind of one of those guilty pleasure laugh at films. We want to know what is your guilty pleasure horror film. The film that you watch, you can't get enough of just because it comes on. You have to watch it despite how bad it is or whatever. Like mine, one of mine is Doom. I fucking that love that movie. <laughs> I fucking love that movie because it is, my, it is one of my absolute guilty pleasures because it's so fucking atrocious and it just has some of the best fucking rock one-liners in it. I've got one round. It's like, <laughs> it's like come on, dude. But nonetheless... Let us know what your guilt favorite, what your guilty pleasure horror is. And I see we've also got Night Feeders 8, A New Beginning, um, Night Feeders 9, he, Night, hu, Night Human Centipede. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so, and yes, you're right. Hello, baby. Good to see you. Hello, baby. Yes, Jeepers Creepers Reborn did suck yes, balls. Did. That movie was awful. Facty, good to see you. Thanks so much for being here. Jaybird as well. Thanks so much for hanging out. Uh, Commander, uh, and I thought I saw somebody else. Um, oh yeah, so Angel Vera says Night of the Living Dead, the remake, and that was, would be the 1991, the Tom Savini one with Tony Todd. Uh, Hello Baby says Big Trouble in Little China and the original Fright Night are my guilty pleasures. Fantastic. And the Jordan said I think by the tenth Night Feeders were due for a soft reboot. <laughs> Good point. Uh, Commander Darklight says Guilty Pleasure, Shaun of the Dead. Tony Regime says Night Feeders versus Freddy. <laughs> wait, 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 wait! Shaun of the Dead is not a guilty pleasure. I wasn't gonna judge him on it. I wasn't. So that's a, that's a good a good movie can't be a guilty pleasure. This true. A, guilty, a guilty pleasure is a film that you're kind of like you shouldn't like, but you do, or you're kind of ashamed of. So yeah, like like Eugene's like Eugene's guilty pleasure is fucking Salo. Really? <laughs> <laughs> when I see 120 days of Sodom, that's what. <sighs> Uh, Javer says guilty pleasure demons very cool uh, Casey Cooper says the angry red planet awesome <laughs> Kevin Dark says it's all I can think of <laughs> uh, and the George says guilty pleasure Freddy versus Jason awesome awesome yeah. Rhoda Nella Sam says return of the living dead fantastic uh, we've got some good ones Denova 28 says the faculty that is that is a good guilty pleasure film. See that that's a good that's a good cult yeah. yeah. Back in the you know, like fucking Robert Rodriguez firing all cylinders, man. CW opera, CW stars, yeah. throw them in there with the fucking you know, aliens and shit. That was some good stuff. I tell I you, like, you huh? if you can find it, one of my guilty pleasures is the young Van Helsing. Fucking hell, yes. That's so <laughs> bad. So bad. And I've scoured the internet for three months to find it on DVD. Nice. Well, okay, one, another one of mine, it's not, not really a horror film. It's Six String Samurai. Six String Samurai? Yes. Dude, I'm telling you, this movie, it is the perfect guilty pleasure because the movie is 50, 50% fucking amazing and 50% bonkers ludicrous. <laughs> it, it absolutely is. There is shit in the movie that will make you go, Fucking hell. And shit in the movie make you fucking hell. <laughs> it is the weirdest juxtaposition where half, precisely, half your movie is fucking ridiculous. And the other half is fucking amazing. 
Yeah, that 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 would that's a perfect formula right there. I know, right? And that's what happens when you take an absolutely absurd and ludicrous storyline and you make it into an action movie, a martial arts action movie, and then the person you have in the lead role is a legit fucking martial artist. Sword play, fight scenes, all of that. Like, we're talking top-notch shit. And then you put them in the most ludicrous fucking movie possible. It's so bonkers. But Six String Samurai is one of my favorite guilty plays. I That's a movie that I hunted down to find on DVD. A, that movie's going to my fucking collection. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> So, <laughs> oh, let me see. So many good ones in here. Yeah. All right. So they. Oh yeah. All the uh, all the trauma movies. Yep. Or the uh, uh, all the trauma movies. Yep. Trauma. And uh, Hello Baby says, "Oh, from Dust Till Dawn, the original with Sex Machine is a guilty pleasure." Absolutely. Yeah, the original Dust Till Dawn. Fucking Robert Rodriguez, new edit, new delivered. Desperado. You know, fucking Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Fucking hell. Yeah. Ronald Lasame says, "I saw Six String Samurai in theaters." Nice. Ooh. Fucking a. All right. Oh, wait, well, real that, quick. Uh, Nemo, Nemo, Neil Breen movies are my guilty pleasure. I love Neil Breen. They're so bad. Neil <laughs> Breen so Neil Breen, and fucking Ed Wood are just yes. perfect guilty pleasure films. Absolutely. Well, definitely let us know what your favorite guilty pleasure film is down in the comments below or, of course, at weekendhorror at gmail.com. And that is going to bring another episode of Weekend Horror to a close. Thank you all so much for joining us in the start of the new year. And we truly hope you wait, enjoyed wait, wait. Oh, are we are we missing something? No. Oh, fucking hell. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> fucking hell. I can't believe I did that. I cannot believe I did that. You know what I did? And the, the audience, the, nobody in the audience actually fucking said anything. You know why? Because it's fucking trivia time. Trivia time. <laughs> I totally <laughs> fucked it up. <laughs> Rodan Los Angeles, are you? Oh shit. Shit, I gotta turn it off. Okay, there we go. <laughs> it's a new feature. It's a new fucking feature. It's a new feature. <laughs> Sorry. We have a trivia question tonight. We do. got angry. I, the, chat, the chat got fucking mad. Woo! There is a trivia. There's a trivia question. So, my bad. My fucking bad. Get those Google fingers ready because we have a trivia question tonight. I almost fucked up and went right past it in the script. Cindy Sue says that we can lose the new feature. <laughs> we did it so that Alex didn't have to keep doing it. So yeah. it still needs confetti cannons. We absolutely need confetti cannons. All right. So, and no, Tony Regime, the answer is not the Buffy hole. Uh, so, Eugene, uh, to win a... To win a Mystery prize from the Weekend Horror Store. Be the first one to get the correct answer to this question, to this question in the live chat. Eugene, whenever you're ready, give them their trivia question tonight. I'm so sorry I almost fucking just ran over this, man. <laughs> the, question, the question is, The Grudge is based on what legendary Japanese folk story? I'll say it again. The Grudge is based on what legendary Japanese folk story? The first person to comment below will win the mystery prize. I had to get the... I had to get the fucking live chat up. Do you have live chat up? Yeah, I got the live chat up. Okay, cool. And it looks like... Yeah, it looks like we have an answer. We got it. I got, and the George said, 
Oh, and the Jordan said? Yeah, and the Jordan said. No, no, it's not. That's not the answer. Oh, that's not the answer. No, no. Travis Brown got the answer. Let me see. Let me see. Let me... Oh, yes. That is correct. Yes, correct. So Kayako is the name of the is the name of the wife. So but but the grudge, the actual like the ghost story is based on a folk story called Yotsuya Kaiden or Tokaido Yotsuya Kaiden or the ghost story of Yotsuya, oh, Yotsuya in Tokaido or the ghost story of Yotsuya. So there were a number of names that the story goes under, but it's a it's a legendary folk uh, folk horror story in Japan. But that's where the original inspiration came for the movie Jew on the Grudge, for the movie The Grudge. So congratulations, Travis Brown. The name it is Yotsuya Kaiden. Absolutely. Urban Le- uh, so but Kayako was the name of the wife in the original grudge. So congratulations, Travis Brown. Good work. <laughs> no. Mm-hmm. Oh, Nocturnal Look says, I know the story and I still failed. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> Uh, but yes, congratulations to uh, Travis Brown who knocked that out of the park. You've got a mystery get uh, prize coming to you. Let me get your name down. Travis Brown, fantastic mystery. All right. So sorry, I almost fucking, I almost fucking ran over the trivia. I, yeah, I totally did. They got mad. <laughs> I totally didn't. Uh, didn't. They, they, the chat was turning on me. Nemo eight thirty says, "Damn it, I didn't read far enough." Yeah. Oh, and Nocturnal X says you write Kayako as that, but yeah, it's uh, but it is the the legend, the story Yotsuya Kaiden is. I'm probably not even pronouncing that correctly. Uh, I'm, I'm pronouncing it like a like you know an American, but but congratulations, Travis Brown. Well done. We will get that printed and send it out to you asap. Sitting <laughs> suit, the thing below, aka Yotsuya Kaiden. <laughs> and so many other names. <laughs> All right, and that... I'm sorry, Anna George said. I'm so sorry. Oh, can I get a prize for you? She getting my hopes up. (laughs) All right, and that will bring another episode of Week in Order to a close. Thank you so much for kicking off the new year with us. We truly hope you enjoyed the show, despite my colossal fuck-up. Join us next week when we look back at the birth of an icon with the original Leprechaun. Gory Stan Winston monster horror in The Relic, 60s British horror in Berserk, and the super creepy 90s remake Body Snatchers. For more horror fun, be sure to follow us on all the socials for The Daily Splatter, your daily film recommendation. And remember, we're constantly being stalked by that cruel list of faceless slashers, The Algorithm. And you can help us defeat it by dropping a comment, liking, subscribing, smashing that notification bell like a true third-act final girl. Joshua Olson does all of the amazing artwork that we have for the show. His designs are absolutely incredible. He's got some new stuff up in his store. Check those out at badsamurai.store. And a massive shout-out to all of our amazing patrons who continue to help us make Weekend Horror the incredible success it has become. You see your names down there on the banner. And if you would like to and are able to support our production, you can by joining and enjoying the tasty benefits of one of our many Patreon tiers. But if Patreon is not your favorite stocking method, you can always support us directly through our PayPal link. Links to everything, including our Discord community, where you can hang out with us, watch movies, and do all kinds of cool stuff are in the description below. And remember, the goal here at Weekend Horror is global horror domination. And we cannot do it without you, our amazing audience. So pretty please, with the hopes and dreams of all of us indie filmmakers everywhere on top, 
Go share the absolute fuck out of our little show. Thank you all so much for being the greatest audience that a podcast could possibly have. We fucking love all of you. Here's to 2023. I am JL. I'm Eugene. We will see you all next week. And as always, stay scared.